0: Welcome back to Metastation for the first of our weekly season four recaps. We're so excited to be back with you. Uh, I am Claire. I am your co-host in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm your co-host
1: in uh, Mississippi, where we just had a massive power outage, (laughs) which thwarted (laughs) our attempts to start the first time, so... Please, at the power outage gods, don't do that again. Yeah, we, it, we were
0: having some trouble connecting and we like had some sort of like minor technical glitches and we were like, well, that's weird. Anyway, that's all fine. And we had like talked through our whole outline. We were like ready to hit go and then disappeared again because the power went out in Aaron's whole town.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so auspicious beginnings yeah. tooth. Our season four <laughs> podcast. <laughs> if I uh, believed importance, I
0: might be concerned. Like, what What does Allie not want us to tell you? <laughs> right? Yes.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> I thought we got rid of her.
0: <laughs> oh good lord. I really liked this episode. I'm really excited about where I think season four is going. So we have like lots and lots of things to yell about. (laughs) Yes,
1: I I agree. I was very happy. I was even happier the second time I watched it. I I was just like, yes, okay, this is my show. My show is back. My characters are back. You know, everything's like, like even the stuff that that wasn't completely clicking, even the stuff that didn't completely work for me, I was like, I'm cool with it. You know, like, We can sail over that because all the good stuff is so great. So we are both very, very enthusiastic, as I'm sure. I mean, we always
0: are. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) even more so. You thought we were excited before? You ain't seen nothing yet. So we thought we would go ahead and start because it feels a little bit more of a self-contained storyline and just kind of check in with all of our friends who are hanging out in Arcadia and kind of talk through that collection of characters both what we saw in last night's episode and also where we where we think they may be going over the course of the season. And then a hop over to Polis where all, where all the shit's going down, where there's blood in the streets.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's been blood on the streets in Polis since, like, God, like... I mean, I don't actually know how long it's been in showtime. Probably less than two weeks. Maybe like a week or something. Yeah. But I mean it's
0: been since like halfway through last season. (laughs) A
1: long time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And yet it still looks fresh, which is which is ominous.
1: I, I don't know, maybe it kept raining and, like, keeping it... Oh, maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Instead of, like, just, like, new, like watering the cobblestones with new blood, which is, like, a very... <laughs> like, like, a very Klingon aesthetic. Like
1: a, <laughs> I know, I was going to say, or, like, Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> Soon it will mingle with the nuclear acid rain, so things are just going to keep getting better in all good old Tra-la-la.
0: polis. so festive. But <laughs> <laughs> well, back in Arcadia where things are relatively bloodless
1: um let's start with jasper because i think we sort of ended last season one of the things that happened in, in 316 or one of the things that we know was supposed to happen originally i think i think they did announce it the the writers um at some point over the hiatus was that jasper was originally written to commit suicide in that final episode so it was that you know he goes off alone into the Garage Bay area with the gun and and I remember you know because I was in Portland with you we were watching together and we're just like clutching each other you know because it felt so much like he was going to he was gonna do it and he didn't and we were both like so grateful that they didn't end his you know his like his PTSD and his grief storyline with that kind of ending because it would have been such. A disappointment. And I know we both also, when we were talking about the trailer in our trailer podcast and then also in our Unity Days wrap-up podcast, I think, talked about our hopes for Jasper and our hopes that we would get to see him processing, actually like processing through some of that PTSD and that grief more kind of all the way through it. Because like last season we got to see it, we got to see him, you know, at the beginning he was drinking to kind of escape from it. And then through the middle... He managed to to find uh, some distractions, helping Raven and so on. So, you know, I know we were both hoping after Jasper had sort of, like, started to cope through everything and then kind of gotten derailed by, like, taking the chip that we would get to see him really face his issues. And so this episode, I think, I mean, it was hard to watch, you know, to see him kind of, like, having those moments of, like, at the beginning he seemed kind of happy and then, you know, they sort of, like, they, they pause and he sees the gun and he has that moment where that despair really like returns to him he has that conversation with raven about you know is it weird that i want to go back that he's he's still sort of longing for that peace and that release that he got in the city of light and that drives him back to the place that he was right before he took the key you know so that he almost he comes close you know he's like he's planning to attempt and it's only monty knocking on the door which was like just such like that moment, you know, like where Monty knocked on the door and he opened like, God, like I was just like, <laughs> my heart was just breaking. So on the one hand, it makes perfect sense that he would go back there. You know, like the City of Light didn't solve anybody's problems and he didn't actually resolve any of his grief last season. He was just sort of distracted from it in different ways for a little while. So it does make sense that when it returned, that he would kind of go back to his his sort of baseline psychological state. You know, so in that sense, I'm glad that they're sort of like confronting that, but it also seems like he's just t- picking up a kind of like different maladaptive way of dealing with it. So yeah, I don't know. What did you think? I
0: yeah, I my feelings were really mixed. Like on on the one hand, and I think it's important to say this up front, is is Devin Bostick continues to nail it like oh yeah yeah Devin bostick continues to absolutely everything that they throw at him no matter how sort of emotionally complicated that he just knocks it out of the park and it feels effortless and incredibly believable like he's he's doing fantastic work in a really challenging story i think i have two issues with it and one one is sort of narrative and one is more i think a broad strokes like I guess, about meaning and about the relationship between the story and the audience who is watching it. But my, my sort of structural narrative objection is much like we talked about one of the big problems with Bellamy in season three was that it felt like they had rewound him back to character beats we'd already sort of watched him walk through
1: yeah. um, in, a, in a
0: way that feels like, char- like personal character growth has was lost for him specifically while everyone else continued to kind of move forward. And what I worry about a little bit with Jasper sort of just purely structurally is, is the arc that they were building last season where he really got to go to some interesting places where the story didn't sort of shy away from his grief and his pain, how ugly it is, how difficult that can be for the people around you to deal with. All of those things were really beautifully executed. And then it felt like they, they found a way for him to begin the steps of moving through that in a way that felt really earned because it was about his pain giving him the ability to recognize Raven's pain and Raven forgetting Finn, triggering something in him about his realization that he didn't want to forget Maya that allowed him to be the voice sort of pulling Raven out of her dark place. And so, mm-hmm. so what I liked, yeah. what I liked about that was it didn't say Jasper's fixed. It didn't minimize things that happened to him. It was about the things that happened to him and about that pain and trauma, but it allowed him to find a place sort of back on the squad again and something to do that made him feel like he had a purpose that was based in you know in who he had become and so i was like just cheering and fist pumping when you know in in that episode where he throws raven in the back of the rover and drives off with her where it felt like this is where his arc felt like it wanted to be going where it's like again we haven't erased like he's still he's still super fucked up like these things haven't been taken away from him but that the story had taken had sort of turned a sharp, you know, right corner and headed in a different direction that I was excited about that felt a little bit short-changed by the fact that then at the end, we didn't see him take the chip. So we don't really know what the thing was that flipped the switch for him into the City of Light. And it wasn't explained away like we heard Amori kind of explain it away, you know, textually. So all that being said, my sort of narrative concerns with this version of it are what has been gained for Jasper in a permanent lasting way from everything that happened in season three. How is he different in this premiere than he was in the in the season three premiere with the exception of the fact that the anger is gone, like the hostility is gone. I think he's redirected it a little better. You know, he's not blaming other people. He's not lashing out at people, but he he is no more feeling connected to the people around him or feeling like he has anything to live for than he was then and so sort of on a structural level that makes me feel like are we going to walk him through the same character beats again where something is going to happen this season that you know like he's going to decide fuck it i want to just die when the world dies and then he's going to end up jumping onto the hero squad at the last minute to save the day or maybe he does die but he dies sacrificing himself instead of through suicide or or they're going to sort of bring back those same beats that we got when he rescued Raven. So sort of narratively, my question is, is it going to feel repetitive? Is it going to feel like he didn't actually make any forward motion in a way that's really frustrating? And then, and then the sort of bigger picture, like, contextual thing about having to sort of remember that, like, we watch television in the real world that real people live in, you know, and people bring their own, Selves to the TV shows that they watch is I worry about the message that it sends about coping with mental illness to sort of imply that it is not possible for Jasper to make any progress. So I don't know, and and again, and I feel like we don't have enough information right now to make that call for Jasper's season four arc. I found it unsettling in a way that's both good and bad. It's a very realistic depiction, it felt like to me, of the way a person who is contemplating suicide plans a suicide attempt, you know, like like that, which on the one hand, it's like that's good storytelling, it's deeply rooted in reality, but on the other hand, it's like very, very hard to watch. You know, it's not a person just picking up a gun and blowing their brains out, it's like he laid down plastic, he had the music, he got out the painting, he left a note, like he... He had, he had a plan and that's very, very difficult if you know somebody who's been through that or you've been through that yourself to watch that play out on screen because that is often how it happens. So my feeling is like, it's heartening, I think in a way that that's the beginning of Jasper's story because it makes it seem unlikely that that will be the end of the story. That We're going to end up in the finale with him going through with the suicide that he planned in the premiere. Seems very unlikely. I worry that if it's, if what we're seeing is that coming out of the City of Light, he backslid to a degree where all that progress was erased and then he's sort of starting over again. Like I think there's a way for that to make sense. I just feel like, what I want for him is to see him moving forward in some definitive way that feels like it respects, you know, the the reality of struggling with mental illness, like it doesn't need to be like a magical cure.
1: I'm, I'm a little bit of two minds on that front too, but I think for a slightly different reason. So like, narratively, I too am sort of a little bit like I wouldn't want to see them, like you said, repeat the same story beats again from last season. It, it, you know, it would it would be sort of like unsatisfying if, if like you said, this is sort of like they just pressed reset on Jasper and he went back to season three and he has to go through the same sort of like thing again. So, and we'll see. I mean, we just don't know yet, right? Like it may not. From the mental health, or psychological standpoint, I mean, I guess for me, you know, and I, and I can only speak from... My experience as a person who has, who has had depression, like severe, you know, like serious major depression before. And in the last year, I have been going through a really severe, like another bout of major depression. And I've been like, I've never actually attempted suicide or like made a plan, but I've definitely have had phases where I like had a lot of suicidal thoughts um, where I was thinking about it or like where I where I where the impulse was there. And, you know, Claire, of course, knows my father in law committed suicide uh, about almost 10 years ago now. But just like speaking from my own experience, like there was a lot of truth in Jasper to me in this. And there's truth in the repetition, I think, because one thing that's about depression in my experience, and and like this is one thing that makes it so, that can make it even harder to cope with, is that when it comes back, it does feel like you're right back where you were last time. Like it's just happening all over again. It's a repeat, you know, like, you know, so I had the last time I had a major depression was like, six or seven years ago, something like that. And it was bad, you know, it lasted like a year, maybe more. Um, part of that was like really, really, really severe. And then I came out of it, you know, I got medication and I got a really good therapist and I actually recovered. I think that was the first time I'd had a major depression that I actually like genuinely recovered from, um, you know, through treatment. And I, and I went through a number of years where I was OK. You know, I had some symptoms, but I was able to sort of like control them through like techniques that I had learned and it wasn't too bad. You know, and I think in this back of my head, I started thinking it was over. You know, I was like, oh, well, that was a thing that happened to me right. that like every once in a while I might get a little bit, you know, but but I got this under control, you know. So when it came back again for real last year, you know, like when like the clinical major depression came back and the anxiety, the hardest part about it for a while was just I was so angry and scared about the fact that this thing was happening again. And I was like, I thought I was done with this. You know, like I didn't think I would ever have to do this again. And here it is, this stupid big, this thing again. You know, here I am again feeling like this, like not like I didn't get better before, like nothing happened, you know, like it's coming back. And, you know, and that made like the suicidal thoughts harder because then you start thinking like, well, okay, well, is this just how it's going to be then? Like, I'll be fine for a while, but this is always going to come back. uh, The pain is always going to return. Like, no matter what I do for the rest of my life, it's just like a matter of time before that that pain returns. Like, so that's that cyclicality, that feeling of like I'm never making progress, you know, like I think I'm out of it, it gets sucked back in, you know, you're better for a little while and then it gets worse. So the repetition of it, you know, like that feels in a way kind of psychologically real to me. Because like if you have something like PTSD, you know, complicated grief, depression, you know, I think like a lot of the time you're in remission, but it's never really gone. And so there's always that chance that it's going to return. And it feels like you're backsliding, you know, and you're not. It's just a condition, right? Like it's just like your brain periodically does this thing. Like I, I sometimes I like try to think about it as like, rheumatoid arthritis you know or like an autoimmune disorder like every once in a while it flares up you know like there are things you can do to try to to keep it from flaring up but sometimes it just flares up and it sucks you know but when you're in it it's really hard to think about it that way it feels just like here we go so yeah so the repetition like there's an element of it that feels real to me and then even on like a smaller scale I remember watching last night you know, because, like, there's that moment, like... At the very beginning of the episode, Jasper seems pretty happy, right? And then suddenly there's, a, like, a switch. And then he's suicidal, right? You know, like, it's it's pretty fast. Like, where he kind of goes, like, click. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go, like... I got this gun. I'm going to lay down the plastic. I'm going to go do this thing. And then Monty knocks on the door and inter- interrupts him. And then he switches back again. Like, relatively quickly. You know, like, he goes with Monty. He goes out in the room. And, like, part of that is because, of course contextually like what happens is Raven says we're all going to die in six months. And he's like, sweet, you know, like, I don't have to do this. I can just like coast. (laughs) Like I have an expiration date, you know, like I don't have to worry about like making this decision. I can just, I can just wait it out. But I think like that bit of it felt kind of real to me too, you know, because like, it's one of those things. I think this is actually a really good lesson about suicidal ideation too, where it's like there are hours and minutes and even days where it feels really, really, really like intense. And it feels like it's going to be forever, but it never, ever is. You know, it switches back and then you're going to feel something else again. So that part felt real to me, too. Like, I remember watching that and being like, I had this one moment of like, well, he's sure happy faster than I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, (laughs) I know that. So I don't know. So so it's kind of tough for me, I think, to sort of remove myself from that, like identifying with Jasper in that like really kind of very personal way. Because I think there is a difference, like, the difference between, like, real life and a story is that, you know, stories do, you do need to have some kind of story, like, a story goes somewhere, right. you know, like, you don't want to, like, always start out, you know, end up at the same point, any point that you started out at. And so so I do hope that Jasper's story is not a repetition, you know, and that and that it kind of goes off in a new direction. But like within this episode itself, I think I felt okay with that. Okay, like that seemed yeah. like it was it felt to me like okay, like this is this feels to me like a a sort of psychologically sensitive portrayal of someone who is in that kind of mental state, how they might react to that situation. So so I I was okay with it in this episode. Okay,
0: okay, good. Yeah. I mean and, and this is I I think I hear everything that you're saying and I think that they've done a really good job of, like you said, like, of delving into, you know, this is, like, this is what it feels like. You know, I think I think both in the way it's been mm-hmm. written and the way Devin portrays it, like, it is it is unsettlingly believable, I think, in a lot of those moments. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, like, because unset- it, it is unsettling.
1: I'd like to give them credit for, for that. They've captured that, I think, in a way that is more kind of real and less caricatured than a lot of TV shows managed to capture that. So yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that they keep sticking that landing with Jasper, you know, like I hope that they just keep pursuing that the way that they did in this episode and, and in earlier parts of last season. And whatever happens to Jasper, I hope that we do, I hope we do get to see some closure,
0: you know, that yeah. he do, that we do
1: get to see him work through these feelings and learn to find some meaning in his life again, you know? Yeah. Because um, I think that's really what's missing is like, he's got pleasure, you know, like they were drinking moonshine, I think, and listening to music. So he's got like, he's got pleasure. And I think like now that the end of the world is coming. He's going to keep pursuing pleasure. Like he wants to go see the sunrise and he wants to have fun and whatever. So I hope, I guess I what I hope for Jasper is that instead of just pleasure, I hope he finds meaning. Whatever that means for him.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that's a really good way of putting it. Because I think when we, when we juxtapose, you know, the things that we know from this episode, from the little bits that we've seen of him in, in the teasers and trailers and clips and stuff that they've released, it's like, you know, there's a kind of, soullessness to that happiness that we see you know where he's like oh i don't care like i want us to survive i want us to live you know and and the cute little bit you know where he's like high-fiving with monty in the shower you know it's like it's good to see him happy but there's also something really sinister kind of at the edges of that happiness which is that like yeah he just feels relieved of this burden of living you know and yeah and so it's it's not a kind of happiness that you can, like, root for. Like, I'm glad Jasper's doing okay now. You know, like, it's not it's not that kind of happiness. It's yeah, yeah, its, no, its no, own no. sort of symptom of this dark thing that's still hanging over him. I think both for him and then in a different way, I think for Raven, who we'll get to in a second, who we saw, they've made it sort of textual and explicit in a way that they didn't so much at the end of season three, but that her pain in her leg is back. Which I kept wondering during 3b like after nevermore and we saw her limping but we didn't see her physically in pain so much so they have really decided like so that's like that's gonna be a real thing and so i think for both of them like i don't i don't think it's a good idea and i don't think it tells the right story about disability representation to either a like Diminish those characters because they have those disabilities, which they've never done, or to give them sort of like a miracle cure for them, you know like the neither of those are satisfying storytelling, but what has been really beautiful about Raven's arc pretty much top to bottom through season three, I thought was that they found a way to let her sort of excel and be extraordinary and find meaning and purpose, and like contribute something without taking away from the fact that like you know, she had been through the things that she had been through and she has the limitations that she has. I'd like to see what that would look like in a similar way for Jasper. My hope is that where we see it sort of beginning to kind of come together is that this being, I think, the one really, really big change from the season four premiere to the season three premiere is that we're really watching him rebuild those relationships. Like, I'm really interested in seeing, although... It, I'm sure will be terrible when we do see it. What was in that letter for Monty? Oh yeah, you know, like I'm sure we will that's see a chekhov's it. gun if I've ever seen one yep yep, you yep. know <laughs> and and whether whether the question is whether Monty finds the letter and confronts Jasper about Jasper's depression and it sort of spurs a conversation between them about like how they're dealing with their own deep deep p t s d and trauma in really different ways or whether in the worst most horrible case scenario, you know, does Jasper die either by suicide or some other thing happens and then Monty finds the letter afterwards and like I I mean I hope that he finds it at a point where like Jasper's around and alive and they're getting along and Monty discovers his letter and can confront him and be like, hey, there's all this shit that you're not telling me. You know, like I think like I'd really like that to sort of be a a spur for the two of them to have a real conversation about You know, because Monty is also deeply traumatized. And I think we're going to see that coming out in the next couple episodes. You know, there was some stuff in the trailers where it's like, Monty's got his own dark shit. And they never talked about that, really. And I think that would be like a really
1: great message. I mean, I would love it if Jasper's arc in some way or another involved him coming to talk about his feelings and his and his struggles because last season he didn't really talk about it you know like yeah he threw his feelings in people's face you know he sort of used it like it was more accusatory it was more angry it wasn't like he, he wasn't like really opening up per se he was just kind of like defensive so I think it would be really powerful if those feelings became a way for him to connect to other people like Monty like you said like have them talk about what they've gone through and how they're processing it. Or even Raven, like, I mean, it might be interesting if, like, if somebody else found that letter, if Raven found the letter and confronted him about it. Because I think, you know, like, for me, you know, in in my struggles with depression... The hardest thing is to talk about it, and but the, always the best thing is to talk about it. You know, like I, it's always – and I know it's like one of those things where it's like I know that talking about it is the thing that, that helps the most because it makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel less isolated. You know, like it gives you the chance for – it gives other people the chance to express their care and their support for you. You know, like like saying it, talking is always better. But it's, like, the hardest thing in the world. Even when I know intellectually, like, and we've talked about this, you know. Yeah, we've had this conversation
0: a lot of times.
1: Many times, yeah, where it's, like, I know intellectually, like, just say it you'll feel better but it's there's a barrier Like it becomes extremely difficult to express it right and so um so i you know it would mean a lot to me if jasper's arc involved him learning to talk about it learning to learning that it's possible to connect with other people still even though when you're feeling so alone and so isolated and in so much pain i
0: think you know as we're talking through this i'm sort of zeroing in on like i think that's my sort of biggest concern about like not just sort of the repetition of the story beats but also kind of like the message that they're sending you know about about jasper is just that like, like last year he was coping with this all by himself you know and and so he handled things really badly and he took this out that was sort of handed to him that felt like magic because that's easier than talking to people you know because because taking yes. the chip and and it was the same thing with raven too like it felt like this easy, miraculous solution that's going to erase everything terrible that's ever happened to you. And the hard, frustrating, messy, soul crushing work of like getting up in the morning and living your life is much more difficult. And I think like you said, like the the fact of Jasper sort of having this kind of backslide isn't in and of itself, either unrealistic or a negative message if that's where he's starting from. But the big piece that's missing is if he finds that human connection you know i think if he finds his way back to a relationship with monty that he lost really i mean going back to like the middle of the mount weather storyline you know it's been a long long time since they've been the unit that they were first introduced as and i also think it 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 is maybe significant i'm hopeful it's significant that there was that little exchange between him and raven you know like raven asking like are you okay raven kind of hearing there's something weird in his tone like i think I think maybe what's going to turn out to happen is that we're going to see that Raven is seeing more than he thinks she's seeing because she also understands it. That they have a yeah, kind exactly. of commonality yeah, yeah. of experience. But yeah, I think that's the thing that season four needs with Jasper is like it doesn't need to magically cure him of his depression. It doesn't need to erase things that happen to him. But I do really feel like the way to make this – an empowering story that is helpful and also to make it, I think narratively not feel like they're just sort of going back to the same well again is to show us like, can he dig deep and be brave enough to say these things out loud to people that he hasn't said out loud, you know, he did a little bit of beginning with Octavia last season and that was really it. And then it kind of went away. And that's another thing that I would actually be, I would, You know, who knows if it's going to happen, but I
1: think one other sort of way I could see Jasper sort of slotting in to this season potentially is that, you know, there's Octavia who is coping with grief and loss in her own, you know, kind of like maladaptive way. And we know there's like, there's a lot of other people who are also dealing with losses, both in our main characters and then also in, you know, in a lot of like grounder characters, like new characters who've lost people to the City of Light. And so there's a possibility that, Jasper could sort of learn to connect to people in a new way through their sort of shared experience of grief. So like th- that's a possibility th- there's a number of, of sort of like different avenues that that could happen, even just outside of Jasper's currently existing relationships, if they decided to kind of like branch him out. So, I mean, you know, we'll see. I'll be curious to see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think there's a lot of ways where like he could, he could tie into the A story in some ways that are like nice and interesting and surprising.
1: Okay, so shall we switch to, to uh, Raven? Yeah. I'm delighted that they're picking up on the alley Upgraded Your Brain thing from last season because I'm just like, I mean, like, super genius Raven was always great anyway, and I'm just, like, so here for, like, mega, super, crazy, genius yes. Raven with, like,
0: actual computer brain (laughs) i know i love it i love it and i think i I love it both because i feel like i'm just like yes girl you have earned this like go be like a cyborg (laughs) you know like i i I just love that so much but i also feel like she had comparatively little to do in this episode but it didn't bug me because it was so clearly table setting for what i think is going to be her hardwired into the center of the a story for the whole rest of the season
1: Yes. Which is pretty typical for Raven, I think, the last couple of seasons. I mean, I remember, like, last season, you know, like, there wasn't a whole lot of her in the promo stuff, and people are like, where is Raven? And then Raven's stories often wind up, I think, turning out to be super spoilery, because she's, like, right dead in the middle of the kind of, like, all of the new technological stuff that they have to discover to solve the new problem yeah so there's
0: nothing Lindsay can say in interviews yeah there's no pictures that you can release from her at mid-season it's sort of like what's happening and she's like it's gonna be crazy and that's all like Lindsay can ever say about anything you know Um, right exactly which is like which is always so delightful it's like how many different ways can you say Straight up, I cannot tell you. But I, what I didn't see coming until we got that clip from this episode released was that Raven would figure it out herself. And and yeah. that adds a really, really delicious twist to it because then it's not, you know, then it's not just Clark has information and then she knows Bellamy, so they have information. And then they, the two of them who function as a unit, you know, um are collectively deciding what to do. Now they have the potential of Raven, who who has information that she's gotten herself, that now she's told Monty and Harper and Jasper. So now, like, you know, and then Clark and Bellamy tell their squad. So now, like, 15 people now. You know, and, yeah. um, and Raven having come to that herself means Raven is not necessarily... Gonna feel obligated to go with what Clark tells her to do if she and Clark disagrees. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the Brave and Lark sort of power trifecta of what's the best thing to do to solve this crisis. It's possible, and we don't know. We don't know enough yet to sort of know how that will you know pan out. But we have no way of knowing if they're going to all sort of organically fall down on the same side. And it seems like maybe indicated from some of the conversations or from the interviews that I read with Lindsay um, that potentially they don't, that maybe she's all for, um, you know, that she's, she's in the Jake Griffin mindset of like, tell everyone, give everyone the information, trust people. And then, like maybe the solution to this thing is lurking somewhere in somebody's brain, and we'll only find it if we like ask for help. And that Clark and Bellamy seem, by the end of this episode, for very urgent reasons, have come down solidly in favor of like nobody let this information get out. You know, so I think I think her having ownership of that information. You know, Bellamy asks her to look into, like. I mean, he 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 tells her clearly some small portion of the story. He doesn't tell her the whole thing. And she pieces it all together. So I think she's got ownership of that information.
1: Well, she's he's she's like his fact checker, right? Because like, you know, Clark told him and he was sort of like, All right, well, you know, like I don't trust Allie as far as I can throw her, you know, yeah, like exactly. we don't know that she's not so so he's sort of like calling in Raven to be like, here's the story can you verify? And then Raven independently verifies. So yeah, so like she kind of like gets, she gets the like, the basics of it, but she's the one who fills in the gaps about what precisely is happening, you know, and why it's happening. And how long they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I think there is something sort of funny. I I did have a very much of a kind of like, must suspend disbelief moment when she was like, They built all of these power plants simultaneously and all of them hit their warranty simultaneously (laughs) and all of them are breaking down at the same rate simultaneously and I was like, okay, sure, that's that's how those things work. That's fine,
0: that's fine, that's fine. fine. We're just going with it, we're going with it. Uh, (laughs) The second your warranty expires, everything explodes. That's why you pay for the warranty. Yeah, the warranty in your car exactly. runs out, you will just die in a fiery car wreck the minute the clock ticks over to midnight. Sorry, I don't make the rules. That's just how science works. When you hit your warranty, the self destruct button. Gets right. Off. Yeah. That's that's how they
1: make sure you buy the extended warranty. Yeah. It's Duh. like that or death. Yeah. <laughs> so if you haven't bought the extended warranty on your car, you're fucked and you're gonna die in a fiery explosion. Yeah, is what exactly. We're yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. Yeah. That was, that was me. I mean, that was one of those moments where I'm just like, oh, the hundred science. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're just like, we're just rolling with this without thinking about it too hard. So, yeah, no, I like that. And, And I think, I mean, we touched on this a little bit too. So, so like the, the one setup for, for Raven's story that we get here is that, you know, she is like locked into this. Uh, end of the world scenario and like you said and like she's she's sort of independently attached to it now she's doing her research she's going to want be the one who has the more technical knowledge so i i i suspect i suspect i assume that she's going to have different ideas about how to deal with a crisis i mean you know she'll be coming up with possibilities and then offering them to clark and bellamy as she has in the past but i'll be interested to see and it did sound like they were hinting that this that she might start to to express, rather than simply being like, "Here are the possibilities," tell me what to do. She's going to be a little bit more like, "This is the thing we got to do." You know, like she'll she'll be a little bit more, perhaps forceful about um about which which solution she thinks is the best one, which would be kind of cool to see, you know? Yeah,
0: because she's never really been um, she has not been a leader in the same way. She has the yeah. capacity to do it, but she sort of has been like. She's a tool that gets sort of strategically deployed as needed,
1: yeah. Or like, or she's a problem solver. She's a problem you know, problem like solver. you say to yeah. her, like, well, here's the problem. We need a way to solve it." Raven's the one who says, "Like, okay, here's a way to solve it, and here's the backups." Right. You know, so she's she's, uh, you know, she's she's so unique and so necessary. But I think in the past is generally. Like removed herself from the decision making right. well, process. Right. Was like she waits She'll for you. Give you like options. you bring her the
0: problem. Like she. Yeah. You bring her the problem. Yeah. She, she figures out to solve it. it. Yeah. Um. But but she spent you know three seasons waiting for you know usually Clark sometimes somebody else you know to come to her and be like Raven we need you to do X and then Raven does X. So I I yeah I'm in, so I'm interested in in what's it like when Raven is proactive you know and um and where i mean and you know and again like a problem has been brought to her but not by somebody saying okay do this they're just sort of like here's the problem that we're up against everyone is sort of trying to figure out what we do um and that, so i'm interested in what happens if she is sort of either at odds with the rest of the group or if she ends up you know like is she the team leader of that group that we see on the boat wherever they're going whatever they're doing yeah. like is that is raven running that squad like that's a really interesting new change you know that would be a big transformation for her character or if she winds up being
1: i mean it might it would be interesting to if we have a situation where like there are two options, and like Clark and Bellamy disagree about which one to take, you know, like if Raven takes a more active role in sort of being a tiebreaker, or even like if it's between later on, if it's between you know like Abby and Kane or Abby and you know whoever if she if she becomes more of a kind of like rather than waiting for the debate to end entering the debates herself
0: like that would be. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. I'm really excited about what her arc is going to be this season. I think there's a lot of um, really interesting kind of juicy threads, just in the very little that we got of her in this episode, like the leg pain coming back, her coming to this information on her own, the fact that this is a science problem with a science solution, um, the fact that she's sort of seems to have, like we talked about, you know, she's got kind of her eye on Jasper a little bit. Um, there's a lot of different, like, lots of different potential interesting things that could happen. We're sort of seated in those little moments that just make me really excited to sort of see what, um, like how, how she ends up being integral to the solution of, of how they fix this thing.
1: Do you, do you want to talk about Monty and Harper
0: too? Yeah. I mean, I don't have, I don't have a lot to say about them. Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) I mean, I definitely have some Monty, I guess, sort of musings related more to um where we're gonna see his relationship with jasper i think monty and harper is super cute you know i like that they had that little moment where they're sort of like they're like out as a couple now you know and reminding us that this was sort of like a weekend hookup because like we've had you know six months of like canon monty harper as like a ship in the fandom since the show ended but like in this world of this show it's been like four days you know yeah. <laughs> so I think it was helpful to have the reminder where it's like no one else knows about this except for like their little, you know, like this tiny little squad of people. Well, and that that the original thing happened at very much
1: a kind of desperate moment yeah. where they were like they had a they had a moment of like a calm in the storm when they didn't know if they were going to get out of it and they had this connection and they, you know, it's a kind of sort of like physical and emotional connection. But it was a kind of a nice moment for them to pause and be like, okay, hang on. Like, is this just a sort of, like, comfort thing? Was it, like, comfort before in Celebration now? Is this a real thing? Is it not a real thing? So, I mean, I think it helped to have that moment. I, I did like that they kind of gave us that, like, little awkward post-coital moment where they're like, okay, that was fun. Um, so, feelings? Yes. No, yes, okay, yes. Okay, good. Yeah, you know, like that felt very like organic.
0: Yeah, it's very it was really sweet. Yeah, they're very sweet. And I and I'm rooting for it to work. Like I I like it. I like them. I don't have a lot of really strong feelings about it yet just in terms of where it's going to tie into the plot in ways where you can see like the other characters like like Miller and Brian, I feel like I have lots of thoughts as to how they're going to tie into the storyline, you know? Like not, yeah. just, not just individually, but like where their relationship is going to bump up against these themes. And Kane and Abby in the same way, you know? And yeah. Murphy and Amore yeah, yeah, in the yeah. same way. Like all of these other canon couples where you're like, I, I can I can look at Murphy and Amore and I can make a lot of guesses about where like your two different personalities And the two different worlds that you come from and the relationship that you know have is going to bump up against or cause friction with or cross paths with or intersect with, you know, storylines as they go forward. You know, if Amori ends up on Raven's tech squad because she knows how to scout tech that Raven needs, then that means Murphy is now like on an away team having to be part of the, you know so like things like that where like okay i can see how this plays out and and monty and harper i still feel like um it's just kind of a question mark and it's a sweet question mark and i'm into it but i also i i am um i'm not sure like where where other than being sort of a nice little glimmer of hope and positivity and human connection in this kind of unrelentingly dark storyline. Like, where's the hook into the A story for this relationship, you know? And and also, I think, on some level, for Harper the character.
1: Yeah, it's not really clear yet how Harper, what Harper's story is going to be other than like so far she's mostly she's like been around and she had this relationship with Monty but she hasn't really had her own storyline even like a kind of like a sub storyline so um I would like for her to get like a story in and this I season. think that she does it it Chelsea yeah, yeah. It,
0: it sounds like from the things that Chelsea has been saying in interviews that like this is a big year for Harper. Like I think that they're Yeah. I think they're gearing up to give her that kind of character depth that she that she hadn't really gotten before. So I think that will I think this is this is one of the big areas where it's like, I just don't have enough information yet to know either what I think is gonna happen or how I feel about that, you know?
1: Yes. No I agree. Where with Monty,
0: yeah. I think it it's clear that he's gonna become integral to whatever tech things are happening like like monty as a character i'm like well you obviously are going to be in like the core squad and yeah and i'm and i'm waiting to see sort of where harper lands with that but i um but i really like her i really like chelsea Reese. i'm super happy to have them digging into her character and giving her more to do um it's just sort of felt like there's not a lot here to sort of hang my hat on yet, you know. Yeah.
1: Other than just kind of like, well, it's gonna go somewhere. I don't know where, but somewhere. But I'm I'm happy to find out. Yeah. Theoretically. Yes. Yeah. And it does and
0: it does feel like it could end up going or beginning to go wherever it's going, you know, as early as the next episode, where it really seems like this squad plus, you know, Clark and Bellamy and Miller and Brian, like they're whatever happens with them with Ice Nation, I think, is gonna loop all of these guys in. So that's what's been going on in Arcadia. So polis (laughs) polis oh i think because so much happens in polis because every fucking buddy is in polis um (laughs) like maybe maybe we could start with some of the characters who had slightly more like murphy and amore's storyline is kind of standalone ish you know insofar as like the big kind of the big picture of a pull of pull stuff. So maybe we can talk about them a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was another one where I feel like it's it's tough. I don't know. I don't have that much to say about them yet because I think we were reestablishing, you know, it was like reestablishing their relationship. So there she was. We got, we got, it was nice that we got an explanation for why she took the chip and that it was because Jaha tricked her into thinking that he was going to bring her to Murphy, which is like actually like really very romantic. <laughs> like,
0: I, you know, like I don't, I don't
1: like... I don't like super duper passionately ship memory, but I do sort of like, I I like memory. And that was a moment where I was like, (laughs) oh, true love, (laughs) true grifter love. Um, (laughs) Uh, So that was really nice. So we kind of like we reestablished them as being primarily kind of devoted to each other. Or like loyal to each other, and then and then reestablish that these are both characters who are just—they're always going to do what's best for them. And Murphy decided, watching things kind of start to go south with Asgarda, that probably not being there was going to be the right thing. So, I mean, that's not really surprising. I was a little bit disappointed, you know, because we got like point five seconds of Murphy, where know. we're like, "Oh, never mind." I know. <laughs>
0: And and we got like our our first exchange I think maybe since the beginning of season two where it was like Kane and Murphy it's like Kane and Murphy I was like he's, yeah, he's just talking yeah. to him like all right you're here grab a gun you're on my team now Murphy's like I don't I don't <laughs> work for you <laughs> he's like uh thanks
1: thanks for this free gun he's out. bye I do sort of I think it's kind of hilarious I have this moment I hadn't really thought about it because like a bunch of you know like things keep happening but um. Like last yesterday evening after the episode ended, I had this moment I was like, wait a second, when is Bellamy gonna remember that Murphy took off with his Murphy gun and never reappeared? Stole <laughs> his
0: gun. Yeah.
1: And like Bellamy
0: seems to have just like forgotten. He's yeah. like <laughs> It's like I thought I had a gun somewhere. What happened to it? And then Kane's like, God damn it, Bellamy, you're always losing things. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> always leaving your gun someplace and not remembering where. I find Aww. guns in the refrigerator every <laughs> day.
0: Guns in the cereal cabinet. <laughs> Bellowing at his guns. Uh. No, I, did, I, I agree with you. I was, my, my heart soared for a second because I thought we were going to get, like, a Murphemy reunion moment. Like, I thought, like, okay, this is going to be, like, Murphy's, like, on the squad. You know, the moment where he's, like, he's like, ugh, oh, these people drive me crazy, but, like, I'm beginning to feel some sense of obligation to them, so, like, let's go help out. And I liked the little exchange that he had with Amoria. It was really, I thought it was it was sort of surprisingly... Moving to hear his certainty that Sky Crew would welcome Mamori and take her in and also take him back.
1: Yeah, no, I thought so too. I thought it was like, it was like, that felt like a big, a big development for Murphy as a character. For him to look at his, to look at his people and refer to them as, to them as his people. And to really express like, not only are they his people, but he feels like he's their person you know that they will accept that they will automatically accept him that they will accept emery as a part of him i mean i think it makes sense that the sky people you know they don't have the kind of like ingrained prejudices about mutations that um that the grounders do like the superstitions or whatever it is so you know i could like definitely it's one of those things where like i could picture murphy bringing Emory to Abby and just being like she's here now and Abby being like cool yeah, exactly. you know, like, yeah 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 whatever this is fine um so yeah but that was although there was a moment like right before that when she was when Emory said um whatever I'm paraphrasing but she said something like your people cast you out like so many times or whatever and I was like well a of all how do you know that b of all like the last time you just left right like up and left with Jaha without telling anyone c of things. The couple times before that you got kicked out, it wasn't because they were jerks. It was because you were fucking murdering people. Right, right. It was like, a <laughs> um, version
0: of this story has he told her that she feels like, you know, that he he's, like, the victim of this, like, vindictive group of people? Which, like, of course, like, if I mean, she's got his version. But, but like, Murphy
1: is not usually the kind to cover that up. Like, yeah, yeah, Murphy yeah. I don't usually think of as, like, a, as a guy who, like, works hard to make himself look really good in his story so it was that was a moment where i was like well
0: that's a different way
1: of looking right at right, right.
0: <laughs> you know what it reminds me of now that we're talking about it out loud it reminds me of that um hilariously off-base moment in the beginning of season three where pike and kane are arguing about finn and it's like and and the way Pike oh, describes yeah. what happened to finn you're like were you you weren't there i was that's not that's not what happened like and 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 so either like you got you got wrong information or 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 more accurately or the writers have somewhat fudged the fact (laughs) to make it fit like it'd be helpful for this person to make this point if we could kind of squeeze around and tell a slightly different like mildly revisionist history version of these actual events and it's like well the grounders only wanted Finn because Finn killed a bunch of people. <laughs> and- <laughs> he pe- he penned up a bunch
1: of like old people and children in, like, a corral and then mowed them down with an automatic yeah. weapon.
0: But, you know, whatever, so that's fine. So it's not <laughs> like, you know, like, the Grounders killed a child, Finn Collins. Well, yeah. <laughs> hang on, Charles, hang on. <laughs> wait a tick, wait a tick. Yeah. Let me, Just let me, one let, second. Let me fact check for you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so this felt like another one of those moments where it's like, you could you could reach for a version where... In the narrative of this story, information has been wrongly transmitted to this person, but it's more likely that this was a little bit of yeah. like a writing shortcut. But I found it really sweet that, um, and I think I think we're gonna see this coming back. That he, you know, he plays it off like a, as sort of a joke, where it's like, oh yeah, of course, it's a and like they owe me, which is a very Murphy way of of sort of covering for the fact that like the real emotional truth in that is that. He's beginning to feel like he is part of this group of people and that he believes that um, he has things to contribute and Amori has things to contribute and that. And when he says, like, you'll be safe there, like what he means is that, like, he also will be safe there, like that they've crossed the bridge past which like he's no longer this sort of ostracized, dangerous outsider. And I think we see the beginnings of that. When he bumps into Clark again in Polis and she calls him her friend. And then really doubling down on that in the finale where you see like his bond with Bellamy again. And he's the one that saves Abby from the hanging. And he's fighting with Pike and Indra. Like that that sense that he's always kind of permanently isolated from the group I think is going away. And so my – what I'm really interested in with Murphy, you know, he spent so much of – seasons two and three and actually even big chunks of season one away from the group in isolated storylines with like maybe one or two other characters so i feel like again like with jasper it's like so we've 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 trod those beats before we've had murphy and Amori alone as street outlaws on the run like we've done that you know and so i'm okay if that's sort of how things kick off but what I really want to see and I'm sure we'll get there is how they get and when they get looped back into the part where like Murphy is is in he's on the squad he's he's inside it again you know and what does that feel like for Amori? um but also what does it feel like for him you know what's it like to see him really like working on on the team and I
1: think I mean so I think that we'll definitely get that. I, I I suspect that you might be right when you point out, you know, that that it's important that Amori is a tech hunter. Like what you know, beginning of last season in the first few episodes, and this kind of got dropped after I think like three o two, is that you know the way that Amori and her brother um, supported themselves um, before last season is that they found tech and they had buyers for it. You know, and one of the buyers was alley um, or the drones of Allie, or whatever um and but she has she said she had other buyers, and that was like one of those loose dangling threads from the beginning of last season that never got picked up and what I suspect is that that I bet you that'll get picked up in this season that we'll see um we're gonna where I, I hope, but I, i'm kind of thinking like maybe we might find out who those other buyers might
0: be, yeah
1: um, and that her connections her you know her connections her her knowledge of where this stuff is, how to get it, who to get it from um is gonna come into play so that at some point you know whether they come back into the storyline by coincidence and then you know they sort of like at a moment when when the people working on the apocalypse problem need a um Need some kind of like MacGuffin, you know, and she's able to get it or whether because they they find out like they find out where they need to go get something and they find her there. And I think that's kind of how maybe that she's going to come in. It, that I think that'll be really interesting. And that's a kind of like this interesting source of like character tension and development is that, you know, that's something that she's done sort of like independently as like, you know, again, as like like a scavenger. Right. As a, as a thief, as a grifter for most of her life. She's done that for profit and for her, her own kind of good. She's just sort of like mercenary, right? Like, you know, at the beginning she's working for Ali, but she wants to steal the Ali backpack from Jaha when he's meditating because she can sell that to somebody else, you know? So she doesn't have any kind of loyalty to any particular person or buyer. She's just like, wherever I can get the best price. So I feel like maybe what might happen is that we might wind up in a situation where um, Imori is being asked to do things for the group, the good of the group, the good of everyone. You know, not for herself, not the thing that's going to be best for her, not the thing that's going to guarantee her safety or survival or or Murphy's or whatever. But they're going to be asked to sort of like set aside all these um, sort of mechanisms that they've had throughout their lives to protect themselves and to support themselves and to commit themselves to a group. One thing that we saw in this episode is that that moment at the beginning, I feel like maybe what Murphy was feeling is that it was sort of realizing that he had a home. You know, he has a home yeah, with these people, yeah. and that's something that he hasn't had since you know, since I think probably since his parent, his mom got sick. You know, like after his mom died and his dad, um, oh no, his dad, his dad got floated right because he got sick. So after, so he probably hasn't really had a, like a home. You know, like a home, home since he got sick, his dad got floated, his mom because we know that his what happened after that is that his mom, you know, kind of lost it and then he was alone. And like Amori's never had a home. And so I think maybe what happened in this episode is that you know, it's like one of those things where it's like you want a home, but I think for people like Murphy and Amori, getting something like that is scary. You know, like right. I think it's yeah. like enticing. But, like, the, like, you know, Murphy in that moment, like he's, he's partly calculating, like, this is not the safest place for us to be. This is not the safest place for Mori to be. But he's also thinking, like, if I stay, if I sort of declare these people my people, if I declare these people my home, that means attaching myself to them, you know, committing myself to them emotionally. Like, there's all kinds of risk attached to having a home, you know, like, you could lose it you could lose yourself in defending it and i think that's maybe what he's running from and that he's going to have to
0: kind of like learn how to be willing to take that risk yeah cuz i think i think they're both people for whom like it's easier to be sort of beholden only to yourself yeah exactly you know if they go back to arcadia and and they both get put to work you know and they're and they're on the team and people are depending on them and they have um, a community that they're part of and they're all sort of like, you know, we kind of rise and fall together with these people, then I think the challenge with that is that then if he gets scared and wants to bolt, then it's harder. You know, right now they sort of like, they're both used to it being just the two, you know, just them. And then Amori was used to being just her and her brother. Um, But that was it, you know, and then they had each other and it was just the two of them and that was it. And um, And so I think it's... You know, one of my favorite parts of his character arc in season three was seeing all of these kind of new unexpected places where it's like there's a moment where Murphy can make a choice where he can bail and get out of this probably alive and and leave somebody else to their fate and he doesn't do it, you know. And yeah. um, and that's fascinating to me. The number of times that you yeah. could have ditched Clark in Polis and the, you know the number of times, ways that he could have gotten out of, you know, getting sort of suckered into what was going on in Polis or teaming up with Pike and Ninja or whatever, you know, like he could have sort of taken his own way out and he didn't. And so I think um I definitely get a sense that that's going to be sort of where, like where his arc builds towards in season four. You know, I think them starting out, bailing out of the ask a thing i think makes sense i think at some point yeah. in the not yeah, too yeah. distant future um and i think that i think you're right that i think it's probably through Amori and the tech stuff but like they're gonna you know or they're gonna be out on the run and they're gonna bump into like they're gonna get pulled back into it pretty quickly
1: yeah or like maybe like i was thinking like it seems not unlikely to me that they're the ones or Amori's the one who knows how to find becca's lab or oh, yeah or they or they or they stumble on becca's lab, and they yes. somehow that's kind of how they come back into it um that's kind of something along those lines, but I think that's that's gonna be the way that they come back into it,
0: yeah, oh, that would be good, yeah, we see some of the same people in those shots in the trailer of Becca's lab that we saw going wherever they're going on that boat, so it's like. It's possible that those yes. are two different storylines, but it's also possible that that is Amori on her boat taking those people to Becca's lab. Um, so, so the big stuff.
1: <laughs> We've been avoiding it. We're like, let's do the little ones that aren't complicated yeah, yeah, yeah. to try to get into. Yeah, so now we are here. <laughs> um,
0: every other character we haven't talked about yet is all tied into this one story that I feel like we might have to sort of go through like... Chronologically, Chronologically, or like chunk by yeah. chunk, instead of trying to break it down by character, because they're all you yeah, know, it's Bellamy and Clark and Kane and Abby and Roan and Echo and Jaha and Octavia and Indra, and they're all like in one story. Which which first of all. Is great. Like, yes.
1: Oh my God. After like an entire season where everyone was just like atomized out into different worlds. Like, oh
0: my God. Even Bellamy
1: and Raven, who were in the same physical location, were like basically not in the same place. Like, I'm so happy to have everyone. In
0: oh one, my
1: like actually talking to each other in one episode, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> and the pacing, I think, because because we had like one a story and like popped back like intermittently for like a few minutes into Arcadia, but it was like not even a third of the episode yeah. really yeah. was with them, you know. Um, and so I, what I loved structurally about about the pacing of the Polis side of the story is that it made me feel that. This was a place where I felt like some of our biggest season three red flags appear to be, genuinely have been addressed. Yeah. Which is, which is that, like, the separation of all the characters from each other, but also what that does for how fucking much plot you have to burn through. Yeah. And how many things you have to skip over, and you can never let anything breathe. And there was so yeah. much stillness in that storyline. Like, so many silent glances and lingering moments and like little emotional beats. Like, even if it was just as simple as like two people make eye contact and we stay there for a second. Yeah. We lost so much of that last season because we had like, you know, we had Allie's stuff, and then we had what's going on in Arcadia, and then we had Clark and Polis, and then we had, like, all of these, you know, other, like, new characters being introduced. And then we had, like, a million things going on, and everyone was separated, and there was, like, nine different stories. You know, even Arcadia, there was three different stories happening. You know, there was so much happening that everything had to sort of move along at this, like, insane pace. It's kind of, like, why I feel like the best Of the Harry Potter movies, were the last two because they split the one book into two, so they could do stuff like have, you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione have a second to just kind of like be with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then and that's where you feel the emotional stakes of the impending battle is these three, you know, people sitting there together and just sort of having like a moment. You know, I really feel like that was a really great kind of harbinger of things to come. For this season, particularly because it's it's shorter. You know, I mm-hmm. think the fact yeah. that they have, they got a shorter episode order means that, like, they really, like, they have to be more judicious in how much, sort of, they can... Yeah,
1: they kind of have to commit to, like, one main story that everyone else is connecting to in a way that's pretty apparent from the beginning. You yeah. Know, they don't have a lot of time to, sort of, like, have two seemingly completely unconnected things that will eventually come together. You know, everything kind of has to be, like you know, like either the main river or a tributary pretty clearly from the beginning. And I think we're already there, you know. So like there's a lot of little, there's a lot of little subplots, you know, like a different, you know, all all of our main characters have their own, uh, for the most part have their kind of like emotional arc or their story that is um, at least beginning to take shape or we have an idea of what it's going to look like. But whatever that story is, we can already pretty well, I think, see how it's going to connect or how it's going to be sort of like, how it's going to work itself out through the main plot. And, like, I think that's the part that was missing in season three that made
0: it so much more, like, halting in places, you know? This is, like, everyone is trying to solve one problem. Yeah, and exactly. And they have different different amounts of information. They're coming at it from different ways. But last season, we had everyone trying to solve, like, nine problems.
1: Yes. I mean, like, there's there's an economy of story and of character in this episode that was completely missing, I think, in season three. So, like, if we go back to Jasper. So, like, Jasper's story is perhaps, I think, the least related to the plot in this episode of almost anyone. Like, Jasper's story is about what happened to him in season two and then the kind of return of that pain after season three. He's not actually contributing to you know doing that much with like the apocalypse storyline at all right but like but the story that this episode kicked off for him is like a logical and apparent and immediate offshoot of that plot so like jasper spins off into the kind of like his his sort of like emotional state is transmuted from like imminent suicide to let's live it up because of what happens, because he finds out of the apocalypse. So, like, that that character development story arc for him is motivated by the same thing that's motivating everybody, you know, Clark and Bellamy and Abby and everybody in Polis. So it's all, like, you know, there's, like, a kind of organic connection to the central conflict for every character that I think makes it really, like, yeah, just, like, really, like, efficient, you know, like, just, like, like, sheer, sort of, like, the sheer beauty of economy in that storytelling, I think, is really what makes it click in this episode. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And even, and even the things that seem out of context to be unrelated like Echo turn out to be deeply related because Echo is a massive obstacle in Clark's ability to do what she needs to do exactly to move this plot forward and so even though Echo doesn't know that Echo is you know connected to this like the apocalypse coming but but resolving like like dealing with Echo and dealing with the you know immediate sort of power vacuum in Polis and like who's fucking in charge here if, like, you know, like, Lexa died and Ontari didn't really honor the coalition. So, like, is there a coalition who's in charge here? There's no commander. Nobody has the flame. You know, everyone thinks the flame, the actual flame itself has been lost. So so the grounders have, like, like no one has any idea who's running the show. And so that, so, so in the season three framework, that's a separate problem. Like, in season three, yeah. we had... We had Polis politics and we had Arcadia politics that were very loosely linked at the beginning. And then we had Allie who was unrelated to them at all until like mid-season.
1: Yeah. And then it sort of all started to come together when Lexa died. You know, so you had a sort of plot point at which the the two different conflicts started to become the same conflict. But first of all, it took several more episodes for those two things to actually like come together and then of course like Lexa dying introduced its own issues into the narrative that kind of pulled away so it's like a centripetal force I think yeah you know like the all these stories doing spinning on their own were sort of like pulling away from the center in season three and in season four already I mean I think if you just think about it sheerly in terms of like let's let's like break down the story that we get, that starts out in season, in this episode, you know, to its, like, most basic components. Like, if we say that Clark is our protagonist, right? And basically, like, you know, overall. um, And in order to start the story, you have, like, you know, if you're looking at um, the, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of Freytag's plot pyramid, um, you know, you have, like, a protagonist and you have you have, like, a sort of, like, inciting incident, some, some, some sort of, like, thing that happens that kicks off a conflict that the protagonist needs to try to resolve right so like we start with clark her problem is the apocalypse is coming she needs to stop stop it and like you said immediately what we get is like now here are a series of barriers to the protagonist achieving her goal you know which will be your antagonist antagonist number one is echo and like you know grounders in in polis being like you can't achieve what you want to achieve because um you know because like because we have other goals. Um, you know, antagonist number two is nature itself, is the fact that, you know, that Raven's out there saying, like, this is what's happening and we can't stop it. So like just how quickly we go straight to here's here's the number, you know, we know exactly what the protagonist's goal is. But not, you know, I said Clark, but we could even just talk about like all of our main protagonists. So Clark and Bellamy and Abby and Kane, and, like all that whole crew, and Raven. They have one overall thing that they're trying to do, and we immediately get a series of barriers to it. And that's just like you know, that's just like super good storytelling because it all is like good storytelling. It's because because it's the the conflict, the goal, and the conflicts and the way to the goal are so clear immediately, and the stakes of it are clear immediately, and everything is kind of like working towards that one issue. Um, so I, yeah, so like, it's just sort of like, oh my God, thank
0: God. (laughs) (laughs) And it, and it really feels like, you know, like when, like the thing that we heard over and over and over again from everyone at the cast, you know, like at unity days and other interviews and stuff is that the thing that they love the most about it is people keep saying like, it feels like season one again. It feels like season one again. And I think that that, I think that the best thing sort of structurally that season one had going for it was that. You know, like when they were a little show when they started out, it was just thirteen yeah. episodes. It wasn't like they didn't have a big, huge budget. They had like a couple of sets, and so it was it was one story told in two halves. Like the 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 problem was, is the ground habitable and survivable? And then you have like the kids on the ground, and then you have the adults on the ark. And they, at some point, lose communication, and they're working towards the goal of like everyone keeping everybody alive, and then trying to get the arc to the ground. Yeah, and it's, so it's like it's one story. There's two worlds, but they're 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 on parallel tracks with each other, you know, and um, and so it's very clean. And then it feels like season two, and then very much more in season three, where you have like. You have more worlds. You have more things going to happen. I mean, even season two, I guess, when you have the like, there's there's inside Mount Weather and there's outside Mount Weather. So you have two worlds again, you know, and and maybe it was it was things fracturing into like three to four different storylines in season three that made it feel like then things were kind of um, had lost that cohesion. But it does really feel like I I was um, like even even though this episode was like so dark and bloody I was like smiling the whole time (laughs) like for huge chunks of it like I felt like invigorated by seeing these people working together in new combinations in combinations that we really like and haven't seen in a long time like just like seeing seeing Abby and her mom as partners executing a task like simple things like that that really harken back to like the stuff about season 1 that worked really well. And and having seven or eight characters, you know, like like the this the scam they run to get to Roan involves everybody, you know. Yeah, Jaha's exactly. In it, Octavia's in it, Abby is in it, Bellamy is in it. Everyone like like it was it was like a little mini Heist movie, you know, like yeah, 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 and it was like it was like a like a little like Ocean's Eleven in the middle of Polis, (laughs) you know, and um, which was great because that's the kind of um, that's the kind of stuff that we really miss when you have like okay, there's two characters, you know, like over here the storyline is just Clark and Lexa, and over here it's just Jaha and Raven, and then over here it's just you know. Jasper and Monty, and over here it's just mur- Like it's like that's all. It's just too much, you know. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so having like having this sort of the big macro, you know, sort of storyline bringing everyone back together, in these just really fun and satisfying ways, but also setting up like um, like both plot and character arcs that I think are going to be really satisfying.
1: Uh, I was so happy too. I mean, I just like yeah it just it just felt so right <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so okay so do we want to just want to go through this uh sort of like scene by scene which means that I, at what point in the episode do I derail it by just like squealing about Belaric I guess is the <laughs> um... <laughs>
0: I feel like this is going to be the season where we abandon all pretense of journalistic integrity because I feel like if, like if this pilot is any, or this premiere is any indication, like Balark and Cabby are going to be like the, like, like both as, as, as like pairings and also the collective foursome of them are going to be like, like Rising so hard this season that it's gonna be very hard for us to maintain any degree of chill. So, I feel like we should I, just say yeah. it up front. I think we should. We should. Like, I think I think we're capable of neutrally, like, analyzing the writing and the story choices and things like that. Sure, but also, there's gonna be screaming.
1: Yes. But we're going to, you're gonna to have to, like, set aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll try to time stamp it appropriately in case yeah. you need to. <laughs> just like, I'm gonna fast forward this because, like, one minute and 46 seconds of Aaron just going. <laughs>
0: But seriously, I died and went to heaven in that first five minutes. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I was, I could, I could feel it all the way from Oregon. I was like, she's so happy and I'm so happy for her. Because what I, so what I liked about, I I thought it was, I thought it was, it was smart that we didn't like, we didn't need to see Clark tell Bellamy the entire story in all of its entirety. Like we didn't need that yes. whole thing. We skipped straight to like. What the fuck are we going to do? And what I I really liked about, you know, about where they sort of like reestablish us with the two of them together is like, and and this gets into, I think, in some good ways and some bad ways that we'll talk about more in different combinations of characters, but like the running theme of kind of closing the book on people's conflicts with each other from season three in a way that is not just like, we're putting this thing on pause because we have a bigger problem. It's like this issue between us has been definitively resolved. And I think that we, for Clark and Bellamy, we really did begin to get that in, you know, in season three B when they came back together again. But I think that like launching into season four with that, it's like, okay, so, so they may find themselves disagreeing on stuff, but the world that we lived in before where they were like on opposite sides of the major crisis, like that door is closed. And then, you know, and Kane has a line where he says that to to Abby when she's starting to apologize, when she's looking at his wrist wounds and he's starting to, you know, she's, you can see her working up to trying to wanting to say something about it. And he's like, that's behind us. We're focused on what's going forward. The Kane and Bellamy scene we'll talk about at the end. It felt like there's a lot of moments sort of seeded through where it's like where we're going forward is like both everyone in the big picture collectively and in these pairings and groups and families that are becoming increasingly important like they're they're plot wise united like they're united in that they're in the same story but they're also united in relationship again and as partners again you know like it's bella and clark clark and abby kane and abby kane and bellamy bellamy and octavia you know like all of these um like so that that i think was part of why it felt um really hopeful and really beautiful that it isn't just that they're all moved into the same a story. It's that like fragmented relationships have been, uh, it feels like sort of definitively and permanently repaired.
1: Yes, I agree. And I think, you know, I think if, if what the episode did plot wise was to introduce us to the new sort of overall conflict that they're trying to resolve issue, they're trying to resolve and introduce the kind of like, Running sub conflicts or like barriers to resolving that overall story, I think character wise this first episode, like you said, is very much about like um resolving like basically saying like we are we're like cleaning up the loose ends from last season and we are establishing the new baseline from this moment forward. Here is what these relationships are going to be premised on, you know um, and so like there's a bunch of ways that they kind of like took those little dangling, those, those little bits from the end, from 3B that hadn't quite been totally tied up or resolved, and they sort of, like, put a, you know, put, like, a stamp on them. Um, or, or like, to use Kane's metaphor, turn the page to the next chapter. Um, and, yeah, and so, so, so the Balark scene at the beginning was just, like, it was, it was, I think that's what that was doing. You know, we had... Part of it was just because, like, I think as far as I'm concerned, as, a lot of, as far as a lot of people are concerned... Um you know their relationship was healed in three B with the, especially with yeah. the conversation that they had on the beach in um, four thir- or three thirteen. You know where they kind of offered each other forgiveness and and gave the sort of like reaffirmation of together again. You know so like they were clearly partners again. But I think this this did a really nice job of sort of establishing like okay so they're emerging from the building together. You know like they're they're kind of coming out as a unit. You know but like, but more than that I think also just like reestablishing not just like leadership but i think reestablishing their kind of like more intimate personal emotional relationship with each other so they come out they're looking around they're dismayed and it, you know immediately clark is like keyed into what you know to what bellamy's feeling and she's like she's concerned about him you know so she turns to him and she's like octavia will be okay like don't worry about it like i know she just killed pike <laughs> but um <laughs> but like nobody's going to like nobody's going to retaliate for that you know like he had it coming. And then with that, I think we got a nice little... That, that scene also kind of nicely establishes um, also a little bit like what um, the characters' arcs are going to be. So like Bellamy's response about like... Yeah, but, we're like, you know, basically, like, but don't we all deserve it? You know? So, right, like, kind of reestablishing. Right. Like, that was a beat that I noticed that we got, like you said, like, with Bellamy and Clark and Kane and Jaha, you know, when they come out, this kind of, like, idea of, like, okay, like, we're looking at this. We all recognize our responsibility for it. We all recognize that, like in certain ways, like, you know, like, none of us are innocent, right? Like, none, nobody here is a good right. guy, um, right. you know? So I think that, that that established that, too. But, but I mean, I, I think that moment was really about, like, them reconnecting kind of emotionally, reconnecting in terms of, like, where they were at. And then just, I mean, I don't know. This is where I get flailing. I just, I it made me so happy to, that they got to not only kind of, like, Talk about the problem, you know, talk about like the the nuclear reactor problem and talk about Bellamy's concern for Octavia, but also just kind of like talk to each other about what they just been through, you know? So, you know, for, and and they got to do it with like a little bit of levity. So Bellamy saying to Clark, Bellamy saying to Clark, like, I could use a break from keeping you alive, you know? Like,
0: And then then when he's like, you don't make it easy. And I was like, (laughs) oh, Sass Bellamy is back. Uh, I love Sass Bellamy. I know. And like, it was so, I really,
1: like, I, I was so happy that to see Clark thank him for keeping her alive. Not, I'm not a person who thinks that like. I'm not a person who's been hanging on to like, ugh, you know, nobody thinks Bellamy that needs to happen. Or and I'm also certainly not a person who ever thought that um that Clark didn't appreciate Bellamy enough. Like I think Clark appreciates oh, yeah, Bellamy yeah. more. But Clark appreciates Bellamy more than anybody like on that planet. Like, probably Octavia included. So, but but it was a nice moment to kind of like, I think, I think that was like meant to again establish that relationship that she recognizes. And this was after he you know, they were sort of, like, talking through – we got that great callback um, to, I think, episode four of season one, Murphy's Law, where he's looking around, they're sort of debating t- whether to tell people about the apocalypse problem. And she looks at Bellamy and she says, you're worried about how people are going to react. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, that's, like, such a perfect callback. Like, she remembers then when that you know in Murphy's Law that problem he recognized she didn't recognize that if you tell people things will go wrong he recognized it and she sort of was like there's a callback to that and I think you had pointed out when we were talking before um, we were texting that it's also a callback to um, you know that original conflict between Abby and Jake where Abby you know Jake wanted to tell and Abby didn't you know so we've yeah. got these like little call those little like callbacks to season one but like it was nice that Clark you know was not only thanking him for like literally keeping her alive. But I think because he was kind of like, okay, you know, she's like, all right, what are we going to do? And he's like, okay, here's our plan. Boom, boom, boom. All right. And she's like, so I think it was nice for her to kind of have this moment to get for us to get this moment of her saying, uh, you know, we got to recognize like their partners, not just because they're like leaders together, not just because they're like effective leaders together, but because they kind of give each other this sort of like emotional support and understanding and strength that neither of them really get anywhere else. And and so that was just like, I just thought that was really, really nice. Like I thought I was so happy that they kind of like, they took they took a couple, you know, they took a couple minutes to not, like you were saying earlier, not, not just to kind of be like quick, let's rehash what's happening in the plot, but to sort of like pause and give a little space and let them sort of reflect and let the audience reconnect with who they are and let the audience reconnect with who they are to each other. And I think also to kind of like, I mean, I think there's there are certain elements of this episode that are definitely, like, they're playing cleanup from 3B. Yeah. I think that was definitely a moment they were, like, putting a stamp on it, like, okay, you know, I know, like, not everybody feels the same way about these characters coming out of 3B, but this was the show kind of being like, all right, whatever you thought of season three, this is where we're at.
0: Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> and I think, I think we saw that in a number of different characters and relationships, and I think it, it was it was most sort of definitively, I think, Clear with those two, where it's like this is like we're starting from here. This is sort of this is the new baseline. We've we've recalibrated basically back to sort of you know back to this place, and and then that they sort of that they're almost immediately then thrown in you know like as as a pair into the you know the sort of the the initial big crisis rising up of Echo and Ice Nation, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that there's all of these Asgard warriors who were inside polis when the city of light got shut down and and so now the sort of temporary you know creepy you know unity <laughs> of everybody in the city of light you know being sort of one mind-controlled people like now that that's all gone everyone not only has their pain back but all of the military and political and sort of um you know differences among them have all kind of come roaring back you know, so. People, you know, like Jaha trying to be kind to somebody who's grieving over a dead body and he gets spit on. You know, Clark sees somebody who Lexa killed in the City of Light and there are, like, real consequences, you know, mm-hmm. to that. Like, the, mm-hmm. suddenly the crowd kind of turns on that, you know. And that that moment of, like, you know, that visual we get, I think, before it goes to the first commercial break of it's like Clark and Bellamy sort of as the crowd's beginning to kind of, like, Move in on them, you know, and realizing that, like, they're not safe in Polis, that Sky Crew really needs to get out of there, you know, and and then that sort of the setup of that into <laughs> then Echo showing up and just sort of fucking with everything, you know, I think it was, <laughs> like they really like they they delved in really quickly to um, and she wasn't a character I was wildly interested in, like, super a lot in season three. Um and she got great stuff to do as sort of like the immediate like Clark and Bellamy antagonist.
1: Yeah, no, I loved Echo in this episode. Yeah, she was great. She was, great. She was like, she just like hit the ground running. I thought that was really.
0: I thought. I mean, like Tezzi Tellez is great. She's fantastic, and they and they really delved into, um, like they her her past relationship with Bellamy was super plot relevant, which I liked a lot. Um, that they sort of really really went back there, but um. But yeah, so I think so they so they sort of lay the groundwork for, you know, there's this political crisis in Polis that Clark and Bellamy and the rest of Sky Crew doesn't want to be in and wants to sort of like sneak out the back door and get away from, and then they kind of end up not being able to escape because (laughs) Echoes just straight up beheads an ambassador and takes over and is like, now we're in charge of everything, you know, and so that so it's like right away we've got the sort of. So like that's the pressing problem, you know, and yeah. um, and then sort of seeing, yeah, I guess kind of seeing how how the two of them respond to that and how everyone else kind of responds to that is really like I mean it's within the first like we're like five or six minutes in before it's like,, <laughs> here's the a plot, <laughs> which I just love. we get a lot of that kind of like resetting
1: of relationships. I love too that we got that little moment of Clark. Looking at the flame and then observing Abby and Kane,
0: I really like that that scene and the way that it like i think they I think they use the flame really well. I think that they you know in in a way that felt emotionally earned I think that that it um you know very subtly and and with I think this beautiful work from Eliza, but like we would see something happen that was tied to Clark looking at the flame, and then we would sort of immediately know like like, access all of the things that she is thinking and feeling in that moment, you know. So so she's looking at the flame while she's watching, like, she's watching her mom, you know, try to apologize for the thing that she did to Kane, and Kane telling her, like, it's okay, and the very sweet, you know, moment of tenderness between the two of them, and she looks at the flame, and she has this kind of sad little smile, and it's a little bit, I think, you know, I think that she's, that she's feeling happy that her mom has somebody and a little bit i think this deep sadness that she doesn't have that you know with lexa anymore and um and all these sort of different things that are kind of you know coming up and then and then the scene in the prison cell which is just devastating and beautiful and and such a needed moment but you know of connection between the two of them where like she where she tells abby you know that she loved Lexa, and that we hear that Abby knew that, which I think is such an important thing to have said.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the one thing like everyone at Unity Days when we did our panel, and with the one thing that we all were like, "Yes, absolutely, yeah. we really, really want that." We all this said we so wanted a moment important. where Clark talked to Abby about Lexa. So I think that was like I was so thrilled that we got that. I, it was it was a brief, but I think like perfectly executed moment. Yeah, you know, where we we got to see we got to see clark's like real kind of like genuine unvarnished emotion for a minute because clark of course just always kind of like internalizes it to kind of like deal with a problem you know and so it's rare that we get those moments where clark kind of just like like that comes out so um so i'm glad we got that moment to see where clark is it's so it was so wonderful that her mom got to respond to that you know yeah (laughs) and got to acknowledge out loud you know like that this this that this thing had happened that she had loved and lost and that this is what she's dealing with um and i think you know those little moments that kind of like scattered throughout i think it was very like they did it with like such a light kind of deft touch that while clark is dealing with like every single one of the sort of major plots you know she's dealing with the apocalypse issue she's dealing with the political issue um you know trying to like maneuver around and with Asgarda to save her people in order to save her people again, you know, to save everyone again. Um, That, like, even though she's dealing with all that stuff, we got these enough little moments sort of established, like, okay, you know, like, Clark is still grieving. She's still, you know, like... She's still thinking about Lexa and she's still thinking about the flame. Um, you know, she's sort of like recognizing that, those feelings in her mother. She's still like feeling that pain in the scene um, in, the, um, in the jail cell. And then that leads up perfectly, you know, like I think, and another case of like really great economy of character and economy of story, you know, like the flame, the flame is like political MacGuffin. The thing, the one thing that all of the clans will follow dovetails perfectly with Clark's emotional arc and what they were trying to do in terms of, like, resolving Clark's emotional arc from season three to move into season four so that we get to the end of the episode. And so, like, you know, everything is kind of, like, perfectly set up so that when we get to that scene with her and Roan, which I thought was just a fantastic scene.
0: Such a good scene. Like, it was
1: beautiful. It was, like, so... You know, this this very, very kind of, like, fast-paced, action-packed episode. We get this one very quiet two-person scene you know they're speaking quietly they're having a conversation with each other you know like Roan is speaking to Clark it's not just King speaking to you know Juan Hedda or whatever it's Roan speaking to Clark and you know and we were able to sort of like have that moment where she realizes like in order to in order to move forward like in every way in order to move forward like politically and in order to move forward um, you know, in terms of, like, survival, she has to move forward emotionally by giving up this thing that is the symbol of what she's lost. She has to learn, she has to let go of that thing that is letting go of this, you know, of this kind of, like, uh, of Lexa, basically, I think. Yeah. And so, like, I thought that was a really beautiful way to like honor that storyline from season three and honor that relationship and also resolve it and also do that in a way that it's not extraneous to the plot. You know, like that was really, really nicely handled.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful. And and especially because it comes on the heels of, you know, like like hand over the flame is like that's Indra's first suggestion. You know, and Clark's like, yeah. no, she yeah. won't do it. She won't do it. And so so the idea is sort of floated early on that Clark is holding on to for these for these obviously totally completely emotionally grounded personal reasons she's holding on to this thing that everyone around her already kind of understands is like this is this is like this is our only real weapon you know Mm -hmm. and and she can't and she can't let go and she can't let go and the idea of handing over the chip you know for political purposes just feels anathema to her because it's so deeply personal you know and so it feels really right that like just handing it off to Indra, being like, here, give it to me. I'll go give it to you. Like, oh, okay. Like, that's not, that's the wrong <laughs> moment for that to happen. Yeah. But, but what I think is, is an interesting little, you know, kind of question mark of where is this relationship going to go? It's like the two people in this episode that she permits to see her cry about Lexa are her mom and Rowan. Yeah. Like, she's there, like, she is, she's not like, badass warrior Juan Hedda in that moment. Like you said, like there's people having this sort of moment of human connection, but like, she's not, she's so vulnerable Mm -hmm. to him, you know, like Mm -hmm. she's, she's, she's one step shy of, you know, of begging him because she knows that like, you know, everyone is going to die if he doesn't give in. But also like, like when she tells him, like, you know, I wouldn't do this if it wasn't like, if this wasn't the only way out of this, you know, I would not hand this over. You know, and, um, and what that says about sort of her, her understanding of his understanding of what her relationship with Lexa was, like, it, it again, like, it shorthands that all so nicely to sort of be like, like, you and I standing here, human being to human being, know that I don't want to give this to you. Yeah. You know, like, I, I want to keep this forever and hold it to my heart, because like, I'm really fucked up right now, but I have <laughs> to give you this, you know, and, and that he, and he takes that as real information, like that mm-hmm. he he absorbs and feels the weight of that, and and that is part of, I think, how it gets through, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and th- so I think that was um, I think it was really beautiful to give her that moment of closure, just to 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 you know to move on by giving somebody else the chip. And but the fact that it's him, and the fact that they have that. That it's sort of intimate, kind of how that happens, just makes me really curious. Like, and also because Zach is now a series regular, so like Zach is is going to be permanently in the A story. So I'm just really, really interested to sort of see where that where that goes with him. But I also like that it felt really poetic in a way, where like you know from from the very beginning we're sort of reminded. You know, right off the bat when that lady when when Clark realizes that the dead guy on the ground that that lady is mourning was one of the guys that Lexa killed to save her in the city of light and and the the real sort of messy, ugly cost of of that of you know of of what Lexa had to do to get Clark to where she needed to get to and then at the very end of the episode, it's like so she hands over the chip and then Rowan makes a declaration that Sky crew is protected, and so in a way, it's like. You know, like one last time Lexa saves Clark and then they sort of and then they turn the page, you know, like using that yeah. same cane metaphor. Um, and it's really lovely because it feels like it really it respects that relationship while also acknowledging that like, as with so many things that happened, you know, in the third season, like we've closed the book on that and are moving forward from that point and and everyone is still processing, so like those things like Lexa's still In the story, she still lives in Clark, you know, like that's still always going to be a crucial relationship, but that is sort of, here's the point we're moving forward from. And so I think, I think, and because of how, because of how much of that got fucked up in season three, I think, (laughs) um, I think it was really, really important to like, like narratively Lexa had to be put to rest You know, like I I think just because the story was moving in a different direction, sort of away from that. And so how to do that in a way that feels respectful to the character, respectful to Clark's grief, respectful to the relationship that she and Lexa had, and respectful to, I think, the big problems and how it was handled on sort of a like, storytelling fandom public relations sort of on on the big picture outside of the characters kind of level Mm -hmm. i think things like making it textual on screen in the story that abby griffin loves and supports her bisexual daughter like we always knew that it was always implied but like kids watching the show at home who are closeted in small towns in america with conservative parents need to hear The parents say that, like you Mm -hmm. can't, you can't just trade on everything is okay because we don't believe in labels and sexual orientation isn't a thing that exists. It's like, but we watch television in the real world, and you need to hear a mom. It's like people need to hear Abby offer the exact same. love and support after Lexa that she did after Finn and Clark's yeah, grown up yeah. to a degree where she's Clark's ready to hear it now in a way that she wasn't ready to hear it then yeah but like Abby's the same Abby it's functionally identical and that's what's really important yes you know? I and agree. and I think I and I felt for a long time I felt like okay this is like a way to sort of walk back some of the damage that was done and a way to I think for a lot of people begin healing some of that real genuine pain that was caused to queer audiences was to sort of say like the conversation about representation, the conversation about Clark as an LGBT heroine is continuing, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and showing families with that support, you know, I think is hugely important. So I thought that was, that that was really key. And then I thought giving that really beautiful moment of closure and giving, you know, in a, in a sort of indirect way, giving, Lexa one last chance to save Clark and save her people and to and to work for peace I think was really lovely you know and yeah and then it and it feels like so now like we can move on from here knowing that that has sort of been respected but is also in the past you know and that's such a tricky line
1: yeah it's a tricky line to walk because it's like you have to you have to lay that to rest in order for the story to move forward and the story has to move forward so right. how do you honor both things you know and i think right, they actually right. did
0: that very well i think they did too i really really think the day i thought it was and and i and i you know and and i've heard from a lot of people who were like um like really really devoted Lexa shippers who who had a really hard time you know coming back to the show after Lexa died which totally makes sense um who also felt um who felt like that Abby moment and getting to see Clark grieve really that they they felt that they felt emotionally satisfied by like this was this was handled well like this was Lexa was respected in how this episode was executed well also like he's like doing that have to do where it's like Alicia's not on the show anymore. They can't... And the the chip has this other purpose to serve.
1: And, like, you literally can't have the rest of the show... Spend the rest of the show with Clark, like, staring at a hunk of plastic because it's just, like, not... Exactly. Good TV. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's
0: not it's not narratively <laughs> dynamic. You know, and yeah. they've said like they they began I think early on this season, sort of laying the groundwork for you know the idea of like is Clark going to move on romantically? Which I which I have mixed feelings, but like I like it's definitely too soon right now. You know, so like like that's not like they got they got to be really careful. I think timing wise, but but the idea that like I think that it is important and this is something that I think this show does, has done really, really well with a number of the characters, like, your life doesn't stop when you lose somebody that you love. Yeah. You know, like, you, you, and I think, you know, the, the place that Jasper is stuck in where he can't get out of it, like, that is, you know, and with Octavia, too, like, we see all these people who are handling grief in really different ways, where, like, Octavia right now can't get past it and Jasper right now can't get past it in very different ways. I think what's been really lovely about Abby's arc is seeing that like, you know, she still wears Jake's ring. Like Jake is still very present and and so her moving on, you know, into this relationship that she has with Kane isn't disrespecting the memory of Jake. And it's it's just sort of saying like, you know, You can love somebody and also still like there is a point at which you sort of have to kind of pick your stuff up and keep going, you know. And so I think that showing the ways that the people who who these characters have lost really continue to be with them while also acknowledging that everybody has to move forward. You know, I think is I think it feels like that's really going to be. Um, a big part of kind of everybody's stories in in season four. Um, so I think that all of those things are are threads in various different ways, but it definitely felt right to kind of kick that off with like Jasper on one pole and then Octavia sort of, you know, Turn to the dark side and then and then Clark and Lexa where it's like the way that people handle grief and, you know, in ways that are healthy and not healthy sort of being contrasted. And so I think it isn't a coincidence that like, you know, her, her response to her mom finding somebody to love again, being positive, yeah. I think was really lovely. Like I think, I think it so was, too. you know, it was so subtle and it wasn't like... It didn't feel like ham-handedly foreshadowing, you know, like like that she's going to fall in love again in five minutes. Like it didn't feel clumsily executed. It sort of felt like I think it's important that we see that Clark can coexist in a moment of loving and mix and missing Lexa and also acknowledging the reality that people don't just love one time in their lives.
1: Yeah, she can sort of like look at she's she's loving and missing someone. She still loves and misses her father, you know. Yeah. Um, but she can look at you know her mother with Cain and and sort of and and see that as a positive thing as a you know as a. You know, I think I think that moment is really important because she could be happy for her mother, but it also kind of, it gives a sense of hope, you know? Like, yeah. like it won't always be like this. You won't always feel like this. This isn't, you know, like, like it doesn't disappear, but it also doesn't, isn't like, won't define the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. So it kind of, yeah. And, and like, I'm with you. It was like, it was very like, again, very like kind of like done with a light touch, um, you know, that sort of like hints obliquely at, Things that might be to come, but not in a way where it's like, you know, not in a way where it's like, and now we do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, it felt it felt to me like, um, yeah, it felt it was it was it was handled very subtly. If they are opening up the ground for either in season four or season five for Clark having another love interest, I think this is about the pace that that needs to go, like real real slow and letting her sort of exist and breathe in that moment. But I also do feel like it it's also tied to that a story in in that emotional context of like clark knows in that moment before kane and abby do that like they're on the clock yeah you know like the yeah. the factor of like they're they're fighting to stop the end of the world while also knowing that there's a possibility that everyone is going to be dead in six months and so i think that I think that sort of acknowledgement of like wanting, you know, if they if they only have six months left, like Clark feeling weird about like you're not my real dad it doesn't make any emotional <laughs> sense, you right? Know? Yeah, like, yeah. So, so I think so. I'm I'm hopeful that 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 little bit that we get of the sort of the you know the Clark with Lexa and the Chip and Kane and Abby like that, the heart of that moment comes into play in Jasper and Octavia too.
1: Yeah, I think it's really nice that we see in a bunch of different ways to, you know, to kind of like stay on this contrast between Clark and Jasper and Octavia as sort of like people who are, for whom in this episode their sort of like primary emotional arc or motivation has to do with coping with loss is that, you know, what we see is that is Clark sort of like recommitting to life in a yeah. whole bunch of ways, you know, like she's yeah, recommitting, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's recommitting to like her life. By letting go of Lexa, you know, um, in the sense that, you know, that she's that she's sort of, like, choosing to recognize that she's going on, kind of, like, emotionally as a person. Um, in the same moment when she gives the chip, you know, or the the, uh, the flame to um, Roan, she's also committing to life in terms of, like, she's committing to try to save people. She's not giving in to the apocalypse, you know? She's not saying, like, oh, well, we're going to be dead in six months, whatever. She's like... I'm giving this to you because we have a bigger problem. I'm trying to save everyone's lives. I'm trying to save my people today, my life today, my people's lives today, everybody's lives eventually. Like Clark over and over and over again, I think throughout the episode, even in the midst of her pain and her grief and her fear, you know, like being one of the only one of the few people who has who has a complete picture of what's happening. She keeps choosing life over and over and over again. Um, Which I think is really, like, that that's Clark, you know? Like, this is, that's what Clark does. And it was really, I think that's maybe, like, even though it's, like, a really, in a lot of ways, like, a lot of dark stuff is happening, I think maybe that's why the sort of, like, core of this episode is really light, is really hopeful. Yeah. is because we have, our, like, Clark and our other main characters, like, choosing life, choosing optimism. Even that speech at the beginning, you know, when... To go back to the Blark scene at the beginning where where she thanks him, you know, he jokes about keeping her alive and she thanks him for saving her life. I think that's another moment where, like, because, again, like, the thing that prompted her to say thank you was Bellamy saying, you know, like, talking about the problem Bellamy saying, like, all right, here's what we're going to do going forward to solve this thing. It was Bellamy saying, like, all right, we're committing to facing this head on, we're committing to solving the problem. I'm committing to like keeping us all alive. So so Clark is kind of like the main component of that. But I think all of the rest of that crew, and I think, you know, Abby and Kane at the same time, you know, Kane too, Jaha's kind of like leaning into despair a little bit. And Kane is more like over and over, Kane keeps saying, like, no, we move forward. We don't look back, we move forward. You know, so that kind of like core four, I think, if if like mm-hmm. Blark and Cabbie are kind of like the core four people that we have as, like, leadership units, as sort of, like, protagonist units in the show so far. Um, They're all kind of, like, turning towards that, which I think is really cool. And it does draw a really interesting uh, contrast to Jasper, on the one hand, kind of, like, turning towards death in terms of his own death, you know? Like, the way that he copes with this is by taking comfort in the fact that he's going to die, right? And then Octavia who deals with it by also turning to death, but not her own death, but by killing, right? So, like, Octavia, and, like, this is something that, that like, uh, Jason Rothenberg has said in interviews and things, but I think we also saw that in in Octavia Today, era in in the episode with Octavia Today, you know, the very, very beginning, she comes down, she gets Indra down, and the first thing she says to Indra is that she, you know, the first thing she does is that she uh, tells her that she killed Pike. Um, excuse me, and then again in the scene, you know, that, like, that badass scene where, like, they, they, Jaha brings her in as, quote-unquote, on Tari's body, and she cuts herself out of that shroud, which was so cool, and I was, like, I was, great. I was amazed, like, I did not expect to get that scene that was, like, in one of the previews, and I did, I did not expect uh-huh. that to come that early, and I was, like, huh, um, but yeah, she gets out, you know, she kills all those guards and there's that one like beautiful little, like speaking of all these like tiny little moments that they let sort of land to tell you where a character is, you know, she like, she slashes down those two guards and she, she puts the spear through the doctor's head and they get that tight close up of her face and she looks so like invigorated, you know, like she yeah. looks alive. So, so Octavia is really like, she's sort of like coping with her grief and with, uh, with all of this conflict and all of this trouble by embracing death in a different way, but, but still embracing death, you know, she's always looking for that fight. So it's kind of a cool, like, it's kind of like a cool sub theme that we have going on. I think that maybe will play out through the whole season who embraces life, who embraces
0: death. Um, And in what, in what terms, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it really did feel like I think they're laying the groundwork for that to be sort of the big kind of, Character-defining question, you know. Yeah. Of, of this season, and and in ways that I think, sort of, uh, I'm hopeful. I think if this is sort of the the template, that that have some interesting character sort of dynamics where they they tighten up other relationships, and then other relationships they sort of that causes a rift. You know, like yeah, I think, right. Like we're gonna we're we're absolutely gonna see, you know, increasing conflict between. Jasper and Monty, and Bellamy and Octavia, based on, you know, as, like, as the gap between where I'm at versus where you're at on this whole life-death question right. <laughs> becomes, you know, become bigger and bigger. Um, But also that that the thing I'm the most excited about, I think, structurally, the whole season, because we've never seen it before, is Clark, Bellamy, Abby, Kane working together. Yes. Like, we we have seen bits and pieces of little moments where you know where where two to three of them are like united or or where for like five seconds like the scene where where they all where everyone thinks that that they poisoned lexa so like, for, right, like right, a right, second, right 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 yeah in yeah. the background <laughs> they're 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 in a storyline together but they're not really like a unit, and even within that, you know, like that's when Clark and Abby are fighting. So, like we've ne- what we what we've never really had that I can think of is all four of them harmoniously working together on one team with one common goal, where where they're each being used to the best of their strength. Yeah, you know? yeah, and um, and that's really really exciting to me because the I mean the like individually and you know collectively like those are. Those are four of my favorite characters and my favorite sort of set of relationships on the show. And um, and we've never really, I think because the show mined a lot out of sort of either geographical or emotional distance between, you know, them as, as pairs or as, you know, like all the sort of different family relationships, you know, we have... Obviously, all of three a was all about Clark being physically separated, and then also this sort of like growing rift between like Bellamy and Kane over pilot. so all you know, all these sort of like barriers kind of come up in the way um you know all of season one they're they're literally in different places, you know, so yeah, all these sort of abstract indirect parallels and ties and links between them, but like Bellamy and Kane had not met each other, you know and um so all these different sort of ways that the storyline has kind of um Kept them either emotionally or geographically, or-, or even like hierarchically, you know. I think, yeah, so like, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so, like, I think, you know, one thing that I was very pleased about in this episode with Bellamy is that we really saw him sort of. Being stepping up and being asked to step up again and again and again as a leader, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so we got you know that that he was sort of called upon or called up to be the one to negotiate with Echo to talk with Echo. That right. he was one of the, like like he's with Clark. He's sort of like leading the charge on here's what's happening with the apocalypse and here's what we should do. You know that. Um. So so he and like last season he was kind of a leader, but he was always sort of hierarchically. Uh, you know, below Kane and Pike, and I think here we started to see them all. This is the first time we've seen all four of them, kind of like on a level. And the show even lampshades that. You know, that very fat last line when Clark and Bellamy are like swaggering side by side out of uh, Polis, <laughs> and and Kane and Abby are watching them, and um, and it's Kane who says the youth have inherited the earth, and Abby says now they have to save it. You know, so I think that's the show recognizing like, okay, like they've all been on different wavelengths or in different locations, in different places, in different ways, you know, emotionally, geographically, hierarchically, whatever. This is where, again, in that moment where they're sort of like, there's kind of like this, if this episode is a statement of, all right, here's the new status quo, you know, that's the new status quo. All together on the same page, working together as a kind of like leadership unit. Everybody's got their roles, but they're all kind of like, on the same footing. Yeah, so like so that was that was really like that was super satisfying. And it was yeah. it's nice, you know, and calling, you know, going back to season 1, I think it was kind of nice to have like all right, co-leaders Bellamy and Clark like all right, they're like they're they're yes. together now. They're like they are kind of like equals among these other people.
0: Yeah, and and recognized both as equals and as a unit by yeah, the adults. Exactly, you know, which 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 is also new. I think because yes. they were. Like for the, for the parts of season three where they and the adults were in storylines together, they were separated. Yes, you know? yes, exactly. So, so to have to have Kane and Abby be like, all right, Clark and Bellamy, you two are like like your squad A, we're squad B. You know, like that. That's new. You know, and um and what and what I also liked about the way that all kind of unfolded in Polis was that it it. You know it's all very specific to each person's sort of individual skill set so you know clark clark is the brain like clark is the one with the plan she's the one with the information she's the one that knows what to do and you know and so her so her role is pretty clear but then like for for this plot to unfold the way it does you know it is like it's Bellamy's specific history with Echo. And it's Abby being able to extract a bullet from Roan's chest quickly yeah. enough to, you know, to like basically bring him back to consciousness in time to keep everyone's heads from getting chopped off. And it's the fact that Kane is the Chancellor and has Lexa's brand. That's what gives them legitimacy to be like, it's Kane is the reason that they are the 13th Clan. Yes, they have, exactly. They have an elected by Lexa. An appointed leader who like legally according to ground or law, Kane has co equal status with all of the uh, like if they recognize Lex's treaty, Kane gets a seat at the table. You know, so it's like all Again, four of them. It's that
1: economy of plot and character. Everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. is everybody is doing exactly what they specifically and only they specifically can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like what well, yes yeah, one plot and they each have something where it's like nobody else but Bellamy could do what Bellamy does, and no one else but Abby, you know, and so it lets them shine as individuals, but it's all cohesive, pointing towards like getting everyone to that moment where Clark gets Rowan to agree to protect them so that then they can go home and start on with part two of the story, which is how the hell are we gonna stop this apocalypse? But it's right. like to get Sky Crew out of Polis safely and to save their people it's like here's how all the chess pieces have to move and it's like kane has to move to this square and bellamy has to go over here and clark's over here and abby's over here and then we have indra coming into play and then we have octavia coming into play you know but it's all like it's one clean straight line and i was just sitting there going like god this is like (laughs) this is such good writing you know this is such good writing because everything is like like, it's believable, and it's realistic, and, and they are all, and you know, we talked about this before when we were, like, excitedly, like, all caps texting after we had seen it, but it's like, <laughs> everyone feels like themselves again. Yes! It's like real Bellamy again, and real Clark real again, Bellamy and real Abby and real again! Clark. Yes, yes, so we've we've dispensed with all of the, like, you know, the narrative telling us that Bellamy is sort of... Randomly required to be an asshole for plot reasons, or that Kane and Abby are required to like, he's like like holding the idiot ball. Like, who has to make the nonsensically dumb decision to move this plot point forward? I guess today it's Abby, tomorrow it'll be Bellamy, then the next (laughs) day it's Kane. Right? Like, what are we? Like, like all these people are smarter than that. (laughs) Like they play hot potato with the idiot ball. For exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Season three. (laughs) Like, who is required for plot reasons to be criminally stupid? You know, and. Um, and today it was nobody (laughs) I know it was so nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was if it was anyone it was whatever guards let Jaha walk in with a dead body and didn't stab it first real quick (laughs) just to make sure it wasn't the old live person in a body bag (laughs) trick (laughs) literally the oldest trick in the book literally the oldest (laughs) trick in the book yeah this like Cleopatra and her rolled up carpet yeah right exactly so that was so that was the only part where I was like okay if anyone here is too dumb to live, it's those two yabos, and then Octavia took care of right. it. Right, and like that's fine, you know, like somebody, sure. like you gotta have red
1: right? It. It's fine,
0: <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, but yeah, because the important thing is that like everybody, like everyone, sort of in the driver's seat for that story is like a fully articulated version of of their best, most interesting, most like, and 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 not best like good and pure in a sort of shallow one-dimensional way, but like the most clearly realized version of who they are at this moment in time. And, and so it just felt like I felt really good about both. I think where, where it sort of sets up the pieces on the chessboard for what happens next on both halves of this story, both, you know, Octavia, kane and abby staying behind in polis and then clark and bellamy going back to sort of rendezvous with the science squad and then whatever seems to be indicated that happens at farm station next week like so so i'm i'm deeply interested in how both of those stories move forward but it also feels like we we have like we have all of the characters sort of back from whatever strange things happened to them in season three where they sort of temporarily were not themselves And, um, and that, you know, and that it really feels like for, for a, for a storyline that is about basically like the planet exploding, it's remarkable, (laughs) it's remarkable how character driven it is. It is.
1: Yes. It really, really is. Um, and how, like I said, I mean, I think the, the, the flame arc is just kind of like emblematic of how well they have managed in this episode to wed character with plot so that character arcs shifts in character arcs or, like, sort of progress in a character arc also moves the plot forward and vice versa in ways that are, like, really organic and logical and, like, you know, and and don't require a lot of extraneous additional stuff. Let's talk about, like, Roan for just a second because I love him and I'm really glad that he's back. But I was thinking about, so we were talking about the, like, the kind of, like, running theme in this episode and, and it seems like probably through the series of like who, who chooses life who chooses death thing I think we actually get a version of that too with Rowan and Echo because if you look at their yeah. story and their conflict Echo is always pushing she's kind of like on the death side she's always pushing for you gotta kill Juan Hedda and take her power you gotta kill all of sky crew you got like she's like kill 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 like the way that you you know you she like she you got to be a good king you got to go out there and like kill these people and rowan you know i think he you can tell that he's like he clearly sees the the sort of logic um beside behind her point but of course like the turning point in this episode the thing that 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 kind of resolves the problem in this episode is that rather than choosing that Rowan chooses life, he chooses to believe Clark. He chooses to put to, you know, to take the the flame and take the solution that doesn't require anyone to die. Um, And that will allow Clark to, you know, go off and try to save everyone else. So I think that was like, it, was, it was just occurred to me, I was like, huh, that's really cool that even even that other plot, you know, that sort of like political plot between Rowan and Echo, which seems sort of unrelated to these other things, I think we see a version of that same central conflict playing out there, which is kind of cool.
0: I think so too. And I, and I think that, I think what what I find interesting about Rowan, and he... And I, I mean, I, I liked him so much last season and I'm really excited that he's a series regular because I'm, I'm interested to see what happens with a version of Rowan that gets more substantial things to do, you know, and, and, and a deeper look, I think at his sort of inner life, you know, like, like, like what sort of drives him as a person, um, the ways that he is um is and is not like his mother, is and is not a typical Ice Nation person.
1: And like I think it's like cool that we get this this sort of hint here that like he has been shaped in significant ways by his time, away from his people, living yeah. in the world, not as like Living in the world as a person who isn't Asgarda, right? Like he has a different way of seeing the world and of being, and like he makes different choices than what Echo wants him to make or that his mother would make because he has been out there and been someone other than just Asgarda.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I and I see I see little little moments of I mean and in, in obviously in a very different way but like little hints of Lincoln you yeah know, like little, yeah, yeah yeah little bits of like what are the things that the people that you come from unquestioningly believe that you have learned to question because you have spent time outside that bubble yeah and and, and the fact that the for for both Lincoln and for Rowan the first sort of piece of of grounder belief that they dispense with is the knee jerk assumption that like violence is the answer to everything is that sort of blood must have blood kind of mentality you know and and you know and for Lincoln it's through meeting Octavia and well I mean really for Lincoln it started long before but it's but it's through his experience of Octavia that he really kind of contextualizes that and I think for Rowan it's it's really interesting I think to see the ways that Clark has changed him you know yeah. and. And that, you know, that when, when she, I love, God, I love where she comes in and he's just like, it's always something with yeah. you. <laughs> you know? like, he's just like, he's so not impressed. I know. And Clark. I, you know me,
1: I love characters who are not impressed. Like, the perfect foils for Clark are always the people who are like, you pain in the ass. <laughs> I cannot get enough.
0: Because it's so, like... It's his it was so fun. I mean, I was just laughing out loud at some parts of it where he he was just like, it's like, I thought I was done with your fucking bullshit. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> like, like, in, and like, and also like, and I know, like, you're not gonna leave me alone. And it's like, yeah, whatever the thing is that you want from me. I'm never gonna be able to get rid of you until it's like, oh my god, fine, just tell me. What they you have know? the
1: we- most older brother, little sister relationship. They really, like, really that do. Whole- yeah. She
0: walked in, and I was just like, man. <laughs> <laughs> like I, like I, I both on one level, like I absolutely understand how somebody could ship it, like no question. Sure, but also that it really, like that I, that I, I feel that obnoxious younger sibling, exhausted older sibling oh, yeah. dynamic so keenly, where I'm like if this relationship forever remains platonic and she's just like like you're a pain in my ass <laughs> so i'm just like i'm here for it i'm so here for it you know but i love the little sort of bits that we get of more depth to him and i'm particularly interested and i'm and i'm hopeful and maybe i'm maybe i'm assuming too much from a couple of different like camera angles but i'm hopeful <laughs> that there is something um that what I read into the moments where Echo was basically like, you know, take control like your mother would. And it and it kind of cut to him. And it was sort of like, he was hearing that and thinking about it. And it sort of made me feel like, you know, like his relationship with his mom was not great. You know, he yes. seems a little dubious about the idea that she was sort of like shattered by his loss. You yes. Know?
1: And from what we saw of them together in 304 is like
0: he has every right to be like um really <laughs> yeah be like mm, bye so um so i'm i'm interested in whether part of what we're going to get of of rowan as a leader like rowan as the king is is seeing him you know like echo is sort of like the devil on his shoulder trying to make him the kind of ruler that naya was and that ontari you know under naya's apprenticeship was sort of being trained to be and rowan is not somebody who can be kind of handled and controlled like they like he has sort of planned to handle ontari you know so i'm just so i'm i'm interested in roan's sense of himself as a leader in contrast to the leader that his mom was and in contrast to kind of mainstream ice nation culture and where we see that take him and how that shapes the way like ice nation sees him as a leader you know does Mm -hmm. he end up sacrificing credibility over the long term like does this move end up hurting him you know, and he ends up an ally with Sky Crew, but Ice Nation turns you know, like, I don't know, but like but it but I it was interesting where I felt like what we're gonna see is a lot of like he's a pragmatist and he's sort of weighing these consequences and I'm you know, of of sort of like what's the practical thing to do for his people in that moment. But he doesn't seem to have like a um you know he loyalty I think to his people, but not necessarily to being the kind of leader that his mom was. so I'm just I'm yeah. interested to sort of see like how does how does his memory of the way Naya ruled and what Naya's kind of morals and values were who we didn't get to see that much of in season three is this was all sort of like it was kind of all ex- exposition or implied. But I was interested in that cut to his face when, you know, when when Echo's like, Ooh, you could you know like you could do something that even your mom couldn't do. Like your mom who was so you know, and he's just kinda like mmm. he's like, yeah, rule everything, great. <laughs> like he didn't actually sound that he didn't really
1: sound that enthused. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like this is really his like life dream. Well I think the other the other conflict that was introduced for him at the end is um is that you know he declared himself the the keeper of the flame. And then we got that new grounder character, um, Kenza, is that her name? Who shouts out that he's a heretic, right? Like that this is blasphemy. That he yeah. that he's taking control of the flame when he's not like one of, you know, he's not like a priest in that cult or whatever. So I think I think there's a couple like I think Rowan is kind of being set up. As a, as a bit of an iconoclast in a number of different ways so he's kind of he's like an iconoclast for Asgarda because he's not sort of like upholding or cherishing the sorts of like kinds of like assumptions or ideals or whatever that are associated with that but he's also an iconoclast for the flame cults you know he's he's willing to make use of that as a political symbol you know to his to his ends but he doesn't He's not, you know, he doesn't believe in that religion, right? Like, he doesn't honor that religion. Right, right. And so I think, you know, in him, we kind of like, Rhone is sort of like, he represents possibly a new way in a number of different, on a number of different fronts for a number of different groups of people. But obviously that's going to generate a bunch of conflict with the people who tend to be more traditionalists. And so we have the kind of like two, we have like, you know, Echo is kind of like the Asgata traditionalist. And maybe Kenza is like the, you know, flamekeeper um traditionalist. And so so that's a really interesting uh that's a really interesting sort of conflict, especially since, you know, part of, like you said, part of what's driving um Roan's sort of iconoclasm to grounder, you know, like sacred cows is his willingness to Listen to Clark, to listen to Sky Crew, to believe them, to like share goals with them, to consider their point of view, to not just go by the book, but kind of like to use more of his his somewhat more eclectic experience of the world, which I think is pretty cool. And I think I, I can imagine that that will be, you know, with like Abby and Kane there with him in Polis, I'll be very interested to see how like how how his relationship with Kane develops, say, and how his relationship with Kane might operate as something of a foil to Echo's influence as well. So, you know, and it just occurred to me, like, I don't know if we'll get this, but wouldn't it be cool if we had a scene where Kane and Echo talked about Bellamy?
0: Ooh, like, I mean, partly, really you know, like, largely as
1: a, as a development of Echo, I think, since very clearly Echo's arc is tied up with Bellamy in that... He is like the one exception she has to her kind of like very rote, we hate Sky Crew, you are the enemy, we don't trust you, blah, blah, blah. Like he's like the one, she's, she's like, he's like the one non-Asgata person that she kind of sort of has a little bit maybe of something that isn't just like, whatever, you're not one of us, so I don't
0: care. Exactly, yeah. She's the only person that he would hesitate by before immediately just letting him die. <laughs> Which she does in this episode. I don't actually personally,
1: like, I didn't see anything in this episode that made me think that that's going to go in a, like, in a romantic or a shippy kind of way. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so, but I think, like, those, they're they're kind of, like, foils for each other in that, you know, that little exception that Bellamy is is going to make it possible for Echo to start to, like, kind of move towards Roan and being less sort of jingoistic, you know, and, like, sort of having a little bit of, more of an open mind about other people and other ideas and um and i think bellamy to a lesser extent because i don't think he's nearly as like xenophobic as he was they seem to be kind of moving away from that that season three issue but i think her too i mean insofar as he still does have a little bit of of like you know like development to undergo as a character in terms of just sort of like opening up, like, widening his circle of care from just Octavia to his people to everyone, I think, like, she'll be a part of that, so. But I would be curious to see that development for Echo also happen in her kind of learning from Roan, like, learning to see how her, her new king deals with people, and it would be cool, again, like, if she had that conversation with Cain, like, I think that would be, like, a cool interaction. I would love that.
0: Yeah. All right,
1: well, um. that was delightful.
0: That was great. Uh, <laughs> if we do say <laughs> so ourselves. We are delightful. Yes. We love we love being us. Um so uh so that's a that's a wrap on our um uh episode four oh one. We are really working this season to get onto a regular schedule where we're gonna have these up for you guys on Sundays. And so you will see us again next week with our recap of episode four oh two, which is um heavy lies the crown which i just the like (laughs) the the misquoting of shakespeare (laughs) makes me crazy every time i have to say heavy lies the crown or somebody says heavy lies the crown i'm just like say the whole quote a little a little piece um, of you guys i also i believe we will also have a special guest host with us next week
1: um, oh, is, is next week our special yes. guest? Yes. So next yes. week we will be joined by a special guest host, the great Joe Garfine of the Dropship Ship podcast will be joining us as um, as a third guest host for our podcast for 402. Um, We're super excited. Super excited. And in the meantime, um, again, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, Metastation100 or you can follow us on Tumblr at metastation.tumblr.com. Um, and we are so happy to be back. Yay, Yay. bye. And we'll see you next see week. You next week. Bye.